The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joe's, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Joseph Stalin, icon of the 20th century, personification of Soviet might, catalyst of the Cold War, hero to some, monster to many, the man of steel who brought the Soviet Union to the world stage and helped end World War II while simultaneously terrorizing his own people and bringing his fellow communists to their knees. What was previously viewed as a backwards country, a country of peasants and farmers, quickly rose to a world superpower under his determined sociopathic drive. The numbers vary wildly, mostly due to propaganda and secrecy, but estimates range from a conservative 3 million deaths to a terrifying 60 million murders uh, under his long, horrific reign. And today we dig into his life, beliefs, accomplishments, crimes, and more on a cold-blooded, communistic edition of Time Set. You're listening to Time Set. Happy Monday, suckers. Hail Nimrod. Praise Bojangles. Praise Lucifina. Or be gone, Lucifina. Not sure what to do with her sometimes. I, uh, I like a naughty female authority figure. Uh, I'm Dan Cummins. This is Time Suck. Recording from the Suck Dungeon again today with Media Maestro, Triple M, and Jimmy Ingram, Apprentice, Slash Crooner, Joshua Krell. Uh, so much cool shit happening right now. A couple big announcements. Very excited about it. I have a new album I am very happy with called Maybe I'm the Problem, and it's dropping this week. And for the first 90 days, you can hear it only on Pandora. And you get to listen to that album as an album, no bouncing around to other various tracks for free. So click the link in today's podcast description to listen to my new stand-up album, Maybe I'm the Problem, on Pandora Premium for free. The link gives you a free 30-minute trial of Pandora Premium, so when time is up, just come back, click the link again, and you'll have enough time to finish the new album, again, for free. You don't have to be a paying Pandora user to listen. This is a special feature Pandora worked out just for this album. How fucking cool is that? Also, the link only works on your mobile phone. And if you're uh, still having trouble, just to uh, just make sure to update your Pandora app so you have the, the newest version of the app. And that should take care of it. So check that out and let me know what you think. 
Uh, finally, I also have some secret suck news for you future space lizards. The Patreon account is live for those of you who want to sign up early to become space lizards next month. You won't be charged $5 until February 1st. It's $5 a month, and that's when the new space lizard features arrive on the app and the website. Uh, that's when another album, another a second album, Feel the Heat, more stand-up will be available for space lizards and space lizards only you get to uh, you get the download link, uh, so you can listen to that bad boy. Put it in whatever device you want, and that's uh, also when the first piece of Space Lizard exclusive merch comes out. February is when the Secret Suck podcast comes out. We can vote on uh, topics and all that fun stuff. So the age of the Space Lizard almost here. Link to the Patreon profile that is your ticket into the exclusive world of being a Space Lizard in the episode description. And Patreon, by the way, just being used to collect the $5 a month. Uh, you won't have to go to Patreon to get features uh, of this new podcast. It'll be right there in the app, right there on the Time Suck website for you Space Lizards to enjoy. Just, you know, portions of the app, portions of the website that only Space Lizards can access. So can't wait to see how far we can push this whole Space Lizard concept. Working on some new secret Space Lizard handshakes with the fam right now. I'm not even joking. Working on some secret codes, uh, code of ethics, all kinds of stuff. Going to have a real fun club going here real soon. A cult of the curious. So, all right, very excited about all of that. Uh, also, thanks to you Providence Rhode Island suckers who came out this past weekend. Uh, Mui Appreciando, uh, which is Spanglish. For you guys are the fucking best. That's how it translates. Uh, more shows this weekend. Philadelphia, get out to the punchline, January 25th, 27th. Tickets have been selling fast. Make sure you grab those. Get to Baltimore Sunday night, January 28th, Magoobies, uh, Chicago, uh, January 31st uh, through February 3rd. Tell me you're coming to Zanies. It's an amazing comedy club. Uh, one of my favorites in the country, uh, for sure, that I performed at. Uh, going to be at the Gotham Comedy Club in New York City one night only. And that is going to be February 11th. So be sure and get those tickets. Detroit, February 16th at the Magic Bag in Ferndale with the boys from Small Town Murder. Uh, one show is the Swapcast. The other is stand-up, but I believe it is sold out. If not, there is literally just a handful of tickets left. Minneapolis, March 2nd and 3rd, podcast sold out. Stand-up tickets still available. Uh, and the stand-up right now is very Time Suck-esque, so you will enjoy it if you're not a, a necessarily a stand-up fan. Uh, Cleveland, Hilarities, March 22nd to 24th, live podcast, Spokane, Washington, one show only, Sunday, May 6th. More announcements at the end of the show, including uh, that very special Time Sucker update uh, that I teased last week. And now, suck on some Stalin. All right, suckers, before we suck on Stalin, before a little little Joseph, uh, you know, uh, slam himself into my brain hole, Let's get over. Let's go over some communistic terminology. Uh, the following terms and, and brief bios are given in no particular order of significance to today's tale. There is the proletariat. The proletariat is the laboring class, uh, especially the class of industrial workers who lack their own means of production and hence have to sell their labor to live. It is the lowest social or economic class of a community. And those are your factory workers, your maids, your butchers, construction workers, uh, the people boxing up your Amazon goods, people packing up your groceries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, then you have the bourgeoisie. Now, the bourgeoisie are members of the middle and upper class. Class are a group of people with social behavior and political views held to be influenced by private property interest, uh, a social order dominated by capitalists. This is how Merriam-Webster defines the term. I define the bourgeoisie as old money and go-getters, right? Just woo. People, people doing some shit. Now, but when talking about how communists use the term, uh, the bourgeoisie is the factory owner, the landowner, the, the person controlling the means of production, uh, the people who hire the proletariat. 
the people who make their money off of uh, the labor of the proletariat and, and also can exploit them and sometimes do. Uh, the people who manually stimulate farm animal genitalia for fun and profit. Uh, if the proletariat are the have-nots, then the bourgeoisie are the haves and the animal diddlers. They are the elite diddling ruling class. Now, I just made up that farm animal genitalia. Uh, not sure that is a societal role of any sort, and it certainly has nothing to do with the bourgeoisie. Damn you, Lucifina, for encouraging such tasteless depravity in the suck. Now let's talk about Marxism. Marxism is the belief that proletarian revolutions are a natural, inevitable consequence of capitalist societies, resulting in socialist societies that eventually transform into classless, stateless, communist societies. Karl Marx's theory of what he saw is the natural evolution of humanity. Basically, uh, Marx felt that socialism would inevitably give way to communism. Uh, communism is defined as a system uh, in which goods are owned in common and are available as needed to all, like a theory advocating total elimination of private property. So what really is the difference between socialism and communism? Basically, communism is an extreme form of socialism. If socialism is someone who likes to cut loose on the weekend, uh, communism is someone who is fucked up at work Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. And it's not from the night before. It's from one of the several flasks they have hidden around the office. Uh, under communism, individuals are provided for or compensated based on their needs and effect, meaning that in, in a true communist system, you wouldn't have money and you'd simply be given what the government thinks you need to survive in terms of food, clothing, accommodation, uh, etc. Sounds fucking terrible. Uh, central to socialism is that individuals are compensated based on their individual contribution. People that work harder or smarter receive more than those who don't contribute. Uh, socialism sees individuals still having their personal property, but all industrial and production capacity is communally owned, managed by consensus or by government. Socialism is the is the diet version of communism. Socialism is, is at its core an economic philosophy, whereas communism is economic and political in its requirement that the government be the central owner and decision maker in all matters. Mother Russia will take care of you. Give all your goods and talent and heart and soul to Mother Russia, and she will provide you with her communist teat for you and your family to suckle on to get everything you need there, good comrade. Essentially, if socialism were religion, uh, communism would be a cult. In a socialist society, you could have socialized health care, socialized education, but you could also make a lot more money than your neighbor. It can be a little complicated because two governments can be both labeled socialist but actually operate quite differently. Like Canada and Sweden have socialist elements to their governments. Canadian citizens don't have to worry about a medical tragedy bankrupt, bankrupting them like we do here in the U.S. And in Sweden, you won't be crippled with student loan debt for college because college tuition is free. Uh, you can still go into massive debt as a college uh, student in Sweden based on the high cost of living as far as rent, groceries, etc. go, but tuition itself, free. That's a socialist element. One class can't buy their way into a better education uh, the same way that you know you can do in the States. And in both those examples, you can become a wealthy private citizen still. Here in America – the term socialist tends to have an extremely negative connotation, even among the poor, which I've always found to be odd. Uh, if higher education isn't socialized to some degree soon, odds are pretty soon your kid is not going to go to a good school unless he or she is rich. Uh, the real cost of higher education and how it affects our society at large, that's, a, that's an entirely different suck we've got to get into someday. Uh, but again, socialism doesn't have to be uh, the opposite of capitalism. Like uh, Marcus Persson, uh, he's that Swedish citizen who founded Minecraft. You've probably heard of it. If you're a parent, you definitely have. Been a billionaire since his mid-30s. That motherfucker. Uh, I'm very jealous, openly jealous. Uh, who wouldn't want all that sweet video game money? 
and, and he gets nearly free health care if he decides to leave his Beverly Hills mansion and visit his homeland in Sweden, which I doubt he does, uh, doubt he needs to do since he has enough money to just, you know, go buy an entire Ikea store just on a whim. Uh, and that's socialism. You can still get rich. Not so with communism. Communism is anti-capitalism. It's socialism minus all of the fun parts. And communism has never worked out in reality like it does in theory. It always ends up being an oppressive shit show. Think about how Jim Jones' little experiment with communism ended up in South America with everybody dead. Uh, under communism, in its true Marxist theoretical ideal form, you know, you wouldn't have more than your neighbor. Everyone's fucking equal. Everybody gets along. Everything's fair in the sense that everyone leads, you know, their equally shitty, depressing, hopeless life. You know, college would be free, but you'd also be dependent on the state for everything. You know, you work at a collective farm or as a teacher or as a lawyer, and the state gives you what you need to live. However, that everyone is equal shit only works in theory. Even in Russian early 20th century communism, some people still had more than others. Higher ranking party members, those in better favor of the communist party, they lived in the nicer houses. They drove the better cars, ate better food, etc. They also worried about the real threat of the state being able to take everything away from them at any second. It's like in North Korea, Time Suck episode 45. The state decides where you live. Do you get a nice house? Or do you get a shithole apartment? Do you live downtown or out in some, you know, fucking piney village? You know, it depends on uh, what your value is to the state and how loyal you are to the state. If you are an important scientist developing important military secrets for the state, you know what? You're going to live in a nicer place than some dull-eyed motherfucker peeling potatoes in a shed. However, if you suddenly get in a car accident and your scientist brain don't work no good no more, uh, we know what? There goes your value. There goes your nice digs. Have fun peeling those spuds there, Dr. Dodo Brain. Communism, while I like its theoretical focus on equality and the impoverished not being continually exploited like they can be under capitalism, has always sounded like a nightmare to me. Well, one version of communism in early 20th century Russia was Leninism, based on the uh, philosophy of Vladimir Lenin. Lenin was the leader of the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, He was the architect, builder, the first head of the Soviet Union. We heard a little bit about him in Time Suck 47, Rasputin. Uh, he's one of those guys that really helped bring down the long reign of the Russian czars, you know, and, and and move Russia away from being a monarchy. And Leninism, like Marxism, believes that a proletarian revolution is inevitable in a have-have-not society and that socialism follows and leads to communism. However, uh, he believed that a proletarian dictator needed to lead the way from socialism to communism. You know, the people need a firm leader uh, to make everything fair for everyone, a leader who you cannot question without fear of death. A leader that you, you know, don't get to ever vote out of office, ever. Just, you know, just, hey guys, this king shit is not working. We need a new, uh, totally different uh, system where essentially one guy is in charge. Wait, what? That's what we already had. An equal society where everyone is given equal treatment. A communal society with a single, firm-handed leader who decides who lives, who dies, who gets anything. Uh, oh, okay, that sounds fucking worse than the monarchy, actually. Uh, how convenient for Lenin. Okay, a little bit more about this Lenin son of a bitch. Uh, Vladimir Ilyich uh, Ulyanov, a.k.a. Lenin, a name that was a pseudonym, actually. A lot of these Bolsheviks had to have pseudonyms uh, to stay hidden from the uh, czars before the revolution hit. Led Soviet Russia and Soviet Union from 1917 to 1924. He was the leader of the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 and held connections with the group that unseated the Romanov family, ended the monarchy system of government, replacing it with communist ideals. He was well-educated, well-cultured, an avid reader. Came from a wealthy middle class and politically active family, uh, and he had watched as a young boy as his father's job as a public school inspector was threatened due to the government's fear of education. He bore witness to the tragic loss of his older brother, Alexander, 
who was executed for participating in a plan to assassinate Tsar Alexander III. If you remember that from the Rasputin episode, Alexander was Tsar Nicholas's father. Later in life, as a young man, Vladimir would be exiled for participating in political protests, which only led to a more solidified and radical set of beliefs for him. Uh, during his time in exile, spent primarily in Switzerland, London, and Munich, he read voraciously, uh, mostly reading American comic books such as Pootie and Juju, uh, a slapstick precursor to the humor of Charlie Chaplin and Abbott and Costello. Pootie and Juju were known mostly for their famous back and forth you know, of stuff like, uh, well, I never said nothing no how, Pootie. And then zip it, Juju. You sure squawk a lot for someone who ain't never said nothing. And they also coined uh, somewhat famous phrases. Uh, Put it in your lunchbox, Shirley. Park it in the shed. And uh, too little, too diddle, Pootie. And somehow the Pootie and Juju stories kind of softened Lenin's initial thoughts on communism and turned uh, helped turn him into kind of more of a benevolent leader who didn't take himself too seriously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. Lenin was a self-serious man, very self-serious man who I'd never called benevolent. Uh, dude was a cold-blooded killer, and he didn't give two shits about Pootie and Juju. No one cared about it. Uh, it was a very, very unpopular comic book uh, due primarily to the fact that it never existed. Too little, too diddle, Pootie. <laughs> anyway, I can't wait to hear how many of you uh, believed in uh, Pootie and Juju for a while. Anyway, Lenin particularly found purpose and power in works by Karl Marx, and in 1889, he declared himself a Marxist. Uh, Lenin went on to become a lawyer. Often had clients from the peasant class. This gave him firsthand accounts and witness to what Lenin viewed as an unfair, unjust class-based system. He solidified his role as an advocate for the proletariat class. Again, in 1889, excuse me, in 1895, uh, after continued activity with Marxist groups and political protests, he was exiled to Siberia uh, for a period of three years. That was a popular move for the czars, man. Someone's a problem? Fucking kick him out to Siberia. Uh, he moved to Munich for a short time before returning to St. Petersburg and intensifying his political efforts. In the early 1900s, under the failing leadership of Tsar Nicholas II, the communist movement gained traction and Lenin split from many of his Marxist allies in the Menshevik party, creating the Bolsheviks in opposition. And he was exiled again, this time spending most of his days in Switzerland reading those comic books. Put it in your lunchbox, Shirley. Uh, on, the wheel, <laughs> on the heels of World War I, Lenin returned home to a war-weakened country. Lenin rallied under the slogan of peace, land, bread, appealing to the peasant proletariat class who had been disposed. Uh, hungry, uh, deposed, excuse me, and weary of fighting for decades and had become increasingly wary of the bourgeoisie. By the way, how shitty are conditions in your country when you can rally a revolution around peace and bread? Not going to get a lot of followers in 2018 America promising more bread for people. Uh, when you can get free loaves of bread brought to your tables at so many restaurants. Texas Roadhouse, by the way, fucking great bread. Uh, in 1917, Lenin led the October Revolution, overthrew the provisional government that had been set up after the ousting and murder of the Romanov family. Civil war followed, and Lenin developed a ruthless strategy to maintain control that became known as the Red Terror. Too little, too diddle, Pootie. Uh, effectively, all opposition was murdered, which technically is the best way to get rid of the competition. Hard to beat constant murder of those who oppose you if you can pull it off. I mean, Starbucks, you know, it's super popular. Sure it is. But they would have a much bigger market share if they just started bombing the fuck out of their competition, like literally bombing them, just raising their buildings to the ground. You know, uh, Caribou Coffee, Dutch Brothers, Tim Hortons, Dunkin' Donuts, just whoever else opposed their iron caffeinated will. Uh, famine, poverty, and unrest filled Lenin's reign. Uh, Leon Trotsky and Joseph Stalin became part of his elite circle and necessary government, uh, governmental tools. Trotsky was a showman and an idealist. Stalin was brute force. 
On his deathbed, Lenin expressed regret for the way his rule failed in communist theory and emerged uh, as a dictatorship, and he warned his closest allies to be wary of Joseph Stalin and Stalin's climb to power. Now let's talk about Trotskyism. Uh, Leon Trotsky was one of the architects with Lenin of the Bolshevik Revolution and also a Marxist, another communistic revolutionary. He disagreed with Stalin on various aspects of communism, especially when it came to the end of uh, goal of communism, which he believed to be essentially uh, eating as many tasty, tasty kind of capitalist babies as you can. That's definitely the weirdest aspect of Trotskyism, the focus on infant capitalist cannibalism. No. Uh, unlike Stalin, Trotsky wanted to take over the entire world and rebuild it in this kind of communist image, and he wanted to do it quickly. He was a big advocate of one world government. He felt a natural evolution of the revolution uh, was to spread communism globally, whereas Stalin wanted to focus on building communism within Mother Russia and make Mother Russia you know, the central power of the world, and there can be satellites, but you know, none as powerful as they are, and they're their own, own, own nation. Uh, after Lenin's death, he vied for control of the Communist Party with Stalin, and when Stalin rose to power, he was exiled and then later killed by a Stalin assassin. A little more info on, on Leon and his eventual assassination, pretty intense. Uh, born Lev Bronstein Trotsky, uh, Leon was an avid Marxist who was initially part of the Menshevik Party, as was Lenin. Just before the October uh, Revolution of seven, uh, 1917, he joined the Bolshevik Party under Lenin and quickly rose in ranks and became one of the seven leading members of the party. In the early days, under Lenin, he served as the People's Commissar of Foreign Affairs, later became the founder and commander of the Red Army. He received high praise for his leadership in ending uh, Russia's civil war. Trotsky was an excellent or orator, uh, well-cultured and intelligent. He knew that violence was a necessary means in revolution. But he didn't have the stomach to be as uh, ruthlessly violent like Stalin did. Uh, Stalin and Trotsky were in many ways opposites. After Lenin's death and Stalin's hostile rise to power, Trotsky was stripped of his duties, banned from the Communist Party, and eventually exiled from the entire country. Despite all of this, he never ceased to be an outspoken opponent of Stalinism. After several European homes, Trotsky and his wife eventually moved to Mexico in 1936 and were warmly accepted by President uh, Lazaro Cadenas. Uh, they lived in uh, Coyoacan, a neighborhood in Mexico City, with famed artists and admirers uh, Frida Kahlo and her husband Diego Rivera. Uh, Trotsky went on to have an affair with Frida and published a book titled The Revolution Betrayed, A Harsh Attack on Stalin's Rule. In 1939, after a fallout with Diego Rivera, uh, no doubt related to his affair with Frida, husbands tend to get like really annoyed uh, at people they admire when those people fuck their wives. Uh, Trotsky and his wife moved to a nearby home. Shortly thereafter, in the summer of 1939, Trotsky was assassinated with an ice axe. Seriously, an ice axe. Uh, buried a couple inches, uh, buried one a couple inches into his skull. Uh, an ice axe looks like an ice pick on one side, and, and it's like a short steel wedge on the other. I don't know if you've ever seen a Pulaski. Uh, growing up in Idaho and <laughs> living out in the country as a kid, I used one. It's like a little kind of like shovel-like tool. Uh, kind of like uh, firefighters use them to help kind of like uh, carve out, uh, you know, perimeters around fire. It's, it's like a Pulaski has like a axe on one side and and, and kind of this wedge on the other. Well, well, this ice axe has a uh, uh, the wedge on one side and just this ice pick on the other. It's just fucking scary looking. Basically, it's like a scarier axe. Uh, to have sunken into your skull. Like I would never want someone to sink any kind of axe into my skull, but if someone was like, hey man, uh, we're gonna have to smack you in the head with an axe. That, that's the bad news. But okay, that's the bad. The good news is that we're gonna let you pick between, you know, like a traditional lumberjack axe and, and, and an ice axe. And then they showed me both of them. And I'd be like, you know, I don't, I don't think that the second part really qualifies as good news, 
but I am going to go with the Lumberjack special. Uh, well, Stalin's reach and desire to silence all opposition found Trotsky in Mexico through Ramon Marcator, uh, a Spanish communist who worked for Stalin's secret police, the NK, uh, NKVD. And uh, Mercator served 20 years in a Mexican prison uh, for killing Trotsky and then received awards from Stalin, including the hero of the Soviet Union, uh, Soviet Union upon his release. I'm sure that made 20 years in a Mexican prison just totally worth it. Just, you know, just, uh, sure, I spent 20 years in prison in a country known for not- notoriously bad prisons. The subhuman food and constant threat of rape and violence was terrible, but I did get this super cool medal and uh, an official certificate signed by Stalin. So, you know, overall, uh, worth it. Uh, bad news, permanently scarred, mangled, uh, barely functional rectum. Uh, good news, uh, super cool metal. <laughs> like, really cool. So put it in your lunchbox, surely. Um, so who are these Bolsheviks I keep talking about? Well, they were a political party formed primarily in exile, led by Lenin. They were born out of the Marxist-Russian Social Democratic Labor Party in 1903. I guess they just uh, they couldn't narrow that down to two or three words. Uh, everybody had to get a say. And it ended up being like a fucking 19-word party. Uh, if you remember from the Rasputin suck, Russia was ruled by czars at the turn of the 20th century. There was also political parties forming initially underground and in secret. And then with the almost revolution of 1905, when the czar realized he was going to lose his throne if he didn't make some concessions, kind of get his shit together. Uh, that's when Nicholas II agreed to relinquish some of his autocratic power, and he gave the people of Russia a parliament with limited legislative power, the Duma. In reality, they had, they had no legislative power. Not, not really. Not, not anything for any consequence. Uh, the Duma was a governing body composed of the members of various political parties, and um, and then he would Nicholas would uh, dissolve the Duma. He retained the power to do that, and then rebuild it at any given time. You know, if there was a bunch of people there who didn't really uh, care for him, he would just fucking shut it down and start in with some some new people that he had like handpicked. And uh, and then prior to the revolution of of nineteen seventeen. You know, that's kind of how he operated for a while there. So if you were a party that was against the czars, you had no real power and you were liable to be kicked out at any time. If the czar or his cronies, you know, thought you were a rabble rouser, uh, you know, and you were also liable to disappear uh, via exile or execution, which is why Lenin, you know, chose to grow his revolution abroad. And then we have Stalinism, another form of communism created by Stalin. Now, Stalinism is defined as a theory and practice of communism developed by Stalin from Marxism-Leninism marked by rigid authoritarianism widespread use of terror, and an emphasis on Russian nationalism. Basically, it's the most fun, lighthearted version of communism you can find. It's so much fun. It's communism with a party hat on. Uh, No, it was a fucking nightmare. Uh, It included rapid industrialization, collectivization of agriculture, the subordination of the interests of foreign communist parties to those of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, deemed by Stalinism to be the leading vanguard party of the communist revolution at the time. In other words, much more rigid, controlled, and focused on industrialization than the other forms of communism. Uh, Also, a cult of personality similar to North Korea's communism. Russians were never taught uh, that Stalin was a god. Like North Koreans are taught that Kim Jong Un is a god, but they they were taught to believe that he was like this father figure. And he was godlike in his love and devotion to the people of Russia, and it empowered uh, other nations such as Cuba and North Korea to become communist, communist satellite nations, ultimately subservient to and dependent on Mother Russia. Okay, so one more term before we really get into Stalin's rise to power: Chikotiloism. Uh, Sorry, it's a tricky word. Chikatiloism is a belief held by many time suckers that it is somehow very funny, 
for an impotent late 20th century Ukrainian child rapist and murderer and topic of Time Suck 57 to make random cameos in historical lessons that have absolutely fucking nothing whatsoever to do with his life or his story. Uh, Chico Tilois uh, seemed to enjoy uh, a silly Russian accent. What is big deal? What is big deal? Constant references to a shamecock. A limp cock of shame is bane of existence. And also, uh, strange, uh, how you say, uh, claim of fame for Chikotilo. And a uh, never-ending desire to wrestle children, you know, and masturbate in public, including orgasming in his pants, uh, as if that should somehow be socially acceptable. What is big deal? I, I wrestle kids to teach physical fitness and make strong for Russia, and sometimes come in sweatpants. How how that big deal? How about for anyone if Chikatilo tug on the limp shamecock inside pants uh, like a mother bird tug on the worm from morning yard ground? I see no humor in tugging and wrestling. So you know, uh, those are some important terms you know to know when we're talking about Russia. So so basically, to understand where Stalin and Stalinistic communism comes from, you just need to understand that for a long, long time. Russia was a feudal monarchy ran by the czars, and the czars and the minor nobility around them were the haves, and the overwhelming majority of Russians were the have-nots. There was the royalty, a very small wealthy class uh, you know, largely comp- comprised of some type of noble uh, that the monarchy relied on to manage the peasants, and then there were the peasants themselves, mainly comprised of farmers who for the most part lived poor, shitty lives. And and that's why Marx's notions of the poor rising up and overthrowing their masters was appealing to the average Russian. That's how the re- re- uh, revolution got going. They were tired of being exploited by the crown. Nicholas II was a poor ruler. He was running the monarchy into the ground in the early 20th century. Russia's gotten slapped around in a few wars like World War One and the Russo-Japanese War. You know, uh, so national morale was low. There was a food shortage, you know, uh, several of them. There was widespread economic disasters. You know, uh, Russia was just this fucking feudal like backwoods farming society. And, and meanwhile, the rest of Europe is quickly industrializing. Russians were the, the pioneers of Europe, if you caught last week's episode. Well, looky here now. I got some pig. Taste this pig. I ever did lick out of a woman's beard. <laughs> Communist ideals became very appealing. You know, Russians had long been ruled by the czars, the czars uh, having strong ties with the Russian Orthodox Church. And this combo of God and crown just wasn't working for the average Russian. And then within the Marxist revolutionaries, you know, they just had different ideas of how Russia should transition into communism. And eventually, Stalin's ideas won out and shaped the Soviet Union. You know, he enforced his ideals with an iron fist and a lot of death, so much death. So let's get into it. Let's get into the life of Stalin with the time suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. Joseph Visanovich Jugosvili was born December 18, 1878. He was born in 1978, guys. He's uh, very rich in history. No, he's born December 18, 1878 in the struggling village of Gori, Georgia, uh, to an impoverished, dysfunctional, uneducated family. Stalin was the third child born to Bessarian and Ekaterina, uh, called Kiki, Jugosvili. Uh, the previous two had died within months of being born, which is actually very common in this part of the world. Uh, the previous two babies had actually killed themselves, which obviously not normal for most parts of the world. However, uh, infant suicides were super common in Russia and in Georgia and you know those, those kind of surrounding Eastern European nations. The Soviet Union would actually go on to have the, the highest suicide uh, rate amongst infants – 
uh, the world had ever seen, uh, only recently being surpassed by North Korean babies. A lot of babies in these areas, uh, you know, of what would later be the Soviet Union, just kind of instinctively realized in the first few months of life how shitty and terrible and hopeless life was, how much worse it was going to be. And the moment they learned to roll over, they would just roll themselves out of their cribs or, you know, cots or, you know, fucking cardboard type, you know, cement boxes or whatever. And kind of just, you know, just smash their heads under the cold Russian floors of their, of their concrete sheds. And of course, that's not true. Babies uh, do not kill themselves. Stalin's childhood nickname was Soso, which I, which I'm sure was just a cute, meaningless nickname in Georgian, uh, you know, or like Russian culture. But what, what I was thinking, what a cruel nickname that would be to give an American child today. Just you know, just what's up, Soso? What's up, average sauce? What's up, nothing special? Why do you look all down and out? Does it have anything to do with your family continually referring to you as nothing to write home about? Oh, lighten up, no big deal. Uh, his father, Bazarian, was a relatively successful shoemaker during uh, Stalin's early life, but unable to keep up with changing fashion and likely suffering from depression due to the loss of his first two children. Bazarian sank into alcoholism and just became a kind of, uh, you know, a drunken mess of a human being. Poverty ensued. The family was forced to move from one dump to another. Stalin's father became abusive, and his mother, a devout Christian, took refuge in a local priest's home where young Georgian Stalin would learn the Russian language. In 1884, Stalin contracted smallpox and uh, was left with lifelong facial scars. His family immediately changes his nickname from Soso to Fugly, which uh, I'm, I'm guessing means something uh, you know nice in Russian. Probably doesn't mean fucking ugly, I don't think. Uh, of course, that's not true. In 1888, Kiki's hard work pays off. Uh, she's able to send her son Joseph to school, the first in his family to attend. She deeply desires that he become a Russian Orthodox priest. So at age 10, Stalin goes to the Gori Church School, which was normally reserved for children of the clergy. Kiki was either shrewd or honest in claiming that Stalin's real father was a deacon to get him in there and that Bazarian was not his biological father. Scandalous. Uh, whether she was telling the truth or not, it worked, and he got in. Stalin clung to and encouraged his story later in life, although the general consensus amongst historians is that Bazarian was likely his, his real father. Stalin was said to be um, one of the best students, but also the naughtiest student in class. Naughty Stalin. Naughty so-so. Bad future dictator. Uh, he was excitable, active, prone to mischief. He, uh, he formed and led a rough gang of children that often fought other kids. He was known for its cruelty and his downtime from, from thug life. Uh, he was also a choir boy. The old choir boy by day. Thug also by day routine. Classic so-so. In 1891, at 12 years old, Stalin is injured when he is hit by a horse-drawn carriage. His left arm is left permanently disfigured and disabled. His arm had to be reconstructed by an extensive surgery, leaving it permanently shorter than his right and stiffened at the elbow. Man, extensive surgeries in 1891 had to have been a motherfucker, right? Painkillers and surgery techniques not nearly as evolved as they are now. During the same year as this injury, Stalin's father takes him from his mother's home to Tiflis, the capital of Georgia. Bazarian takes his son to work at a local shoe factory, and so he can learn to be like a cobbler's apprentice. And this was one of Stalin's uh, first few work experiences in a capitalist uh, society, and it was harsh and unrewarding, and he hated it. Yep, a little bit of hard work, and he's out. If only he could have been a jeweler's apprentice or a well-paid banking assistant. Maybe things would have gone differently for Russia. Uh, with the help of teachers and priests, Stalin has returned to his mother, which officially ends Kiki's marriage with Bazarian, who then stops all financial support. In February of 1892, Stalin's class is taken on a field trip of sorts to watch a public hanging of several peasant bandits. The viewing did not have the desired effect of being a crime deterrent on Stalin. Instead, it pulled sympathy from him for the plight of the poor. Uh, this even had a last lasting impact on him. may have been the uh, primary catalyst uh, towards his role in history as a communist revolutionary. 
Man, late 19th century Georgia's field trips. No joke, huh? Okay, children, uh, change of plan for field trip. Uh, we no longer go to zoo and look at penguins and polar bear. Instead, we go to town square to watch mass hanging of dirty traitor thieves. So no more visit to monkey exhibit. Instead, we watch a flicker of life extinguished from eyes of starving poor people. Uh, cut stealing food to provide for dying babies. Uh, please, please, no crying for thieves. Any child cut crying shall be beaten harshly for showing sympathy for enemy of state. Uh, now, uh, line up for a horse-drawn carriage of bus thingy and a smile for class picture. Smile, it's fun field trip day. All right, let's take a quick break from communistic misery and talk about today's first sponsor. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by Audible. Audiobooks are great for helping you be a better you, whether you want to feel healthier, get motivated, or learn something new. And with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more, Audible has all the audio content you need to start your year on the right foot. And right now, Audible has the hottest, most controversial book on sale today, Fire and Fury by award-winning author and journalist Michael Wolff. Michael is a columnist for USA Today, The Guardian, Vanity Fair, and more. Uh, Fire and Fury tells the inside story of the first nine months of Trump in the White House. What does Trump staff think of the most controversial president of our time? Why was FBI Director James Comey really fired? What was Trump's relationship with lightning rod Steve Bannon and so much more? Is it the real inside scoop? Is it sensationalism? Up to you to decide. It's an exciting, he said, other he said, fascinating listen. This book just came out and Audible already has the audio book. So try books like Fire and Fury on Audible today, whether it's on your phone, through your car, from a tablet, or at home on an Amazon Echo. You can get through tons of books while doing almost anything. And Audible now even lets you switch seamlessly between devices, picking up exactly where you left off. So start a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com slash Time suck or text time suck to 500 uh, hyphen 500. That's audible.com slash time suck or text time suck to 500 hyphen 500 for a 30 day trial and your first audio book. You can do it with audiobooks. Links available to all of this at timesuckpodcast.com and on the time suck app in the episode description. Back to Stalin. July of 1893, Stalin is recommended to seminary school in Tiflis. Uh, Georgians are a minority in Tiflis, and his native tongue is prohibited. Stalin is proud of his heritage, however, and publishes some poetry in Georgian under a pseudonym, and he performs well academically for some time. Stalin went on to learn about Darwin's theory of evolution there, which was an affront to Russian orthodoxy. He also developed questions regarding the problem of evil, which focuses on the idea that evil cannot exist with an omnipotent, omnipresent god. Uh, among other things, this led Stalin to become an atheist, which meant uh, the end of Kiki's plans for her son to become a priest. Despite her years of labor and laundry and gathering money from family and friends to make that happen and hope that he joined the clergy. Man, if you guys if you guys think I've been hard on religion, I got nothing on Stalin. Communists would go on to ban religion entirely in the Soviet Union, just you know, kick the Russian Orthodox Church and all other churches just right in their church dicks, just kick them completely out of Russia. Uh, as annoyed as I can be with certain fundamentalist branches of religion, banning them is never the answer. Uh, when, when we look into history and examine all the atrocities committed under the name of Christianity, for example, that doesn't lead me to believe, and I hope I haven't come across this way, it doesn't lead me to believe that Christianity in and of itself is evil or that it's the reason for killings. Take away Christianity or Islam or, or any other religion, in my opinion, and I think various bad people, 
just find new justification for their hatred, judgment, and murder, right? Religion isn't the problem. Human nature is the problem. In my mind, it's similar to my gut feel on the gun debate. You know, get rid of guns, and I, I do truly believe people will just find another way to kill each other. You know, to me, guns aren't the real problem. People wanting to kill each other are the real problem. Uh, that being said, I do think certain guns make mass murder way too easy, and I don't think all guns should be legal. You know, extreme example, you know, you shouldn't be able to bring a fucking Gatling gun into a mall and just hand crank that bad boy around and light up the food court. You know, I, I don't know. But back to Stalin. Gun control or the lack thereof, entirely different, very complicated, and uh, trigger-inducing suck. Uh, no pun intended, by the way. I just thought of that. Stalin became increasingly difficult at school. Uh, his grades dropped. He was often in trouble and showed a disregard for the norms of the school. Grew, grew his hair long. Uh, joined a secret band book club. Uh, started listening to a lot of Leonard Skinner. A lot of Led Zeppelin, fucking just, you know, a lot of pot, sodded, you know, just dropping a lot of acid. No, wait, I got the, my arrows wrong. No, but he did grow his hair out, joined a secret band book club, disruptive in class, read a lot of pooty and juju, just too little, too diddle, pooty. Uh, in his band book club, he and others read history, philosophy, pro-revolution works, other liberal works, banned books. Can we never do that uh, in this country again, by the way? You know, the U.S. does have its own history of banning books. So ridiculous, such an affront to personal liberty and freedom. So arrogant of a government to think it should determine what's safe for its citizens to read. You know, pro-censorship people, by the way, some of my least favorite people ever, right? Like, uh, you know, Tipper Gore, when she was trying to, fucking, you know, censor two-life crew and all that stuff, just get the fuck out. I'm never the, the love it or leave it guy, or if you don't like it, you can get the fuck out of this country. But if you don't like free speech, just fucking get out. That's where I will become that guy. Just get the fuck out of this country, you dangerously ignorant, simple-minded piece of shit. Go to some other place where they fucking censor you. Live that life. Uh, Stalin also read Capital by Karl Marx, which was convenient uh, timing given the socialist movements were on the rise in Georgia. Stalin began seeking out others with Marxist ideals and socialist groups but found most to be too moderate. Uh, eventually encountered some, some written work by Lenin under the, you know, who was writing under the pseudonym of Tulin. Stalin dropped out of seminary school just a few months shy of graduation and joined the revolution. You know, I don't like the revolution Stalin joined, but how cool would it be to join a revolution? I mean, seriously, how exciting is that shit? Can you imagine just walking away from school or walking away from your job, just walking away from all your normal mundane responsibilities of making sure your tax forms are filled out right and, you know, and making sure this fucking I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and these documents and making sure you get, you know, you get milk at the store that night and, you know, all these fucking making sure your, your cable bill is paid. All that goes away and you're just, you know, you just fucking arm up and you just part of an underground revolution to overthrow a government. Getting killed or imprisoned for doing that, uh, bummer. That part would be a bummer. But other than that, sounds super cool. Uh, so in 1899, Stalin joins the revolution underground community and goes by the codename of Koba from a book called The Patricide. In the fall of 1899, Stalin begins working at a meteorological ob uh, observatory, uh, but then is arrested in early 1900 because of his father's debts. Apparently his father had failed to pay some personal debt. And this is a dad he doesn't really have much contact with anyway. And it was the son's responsibility to ensure that these debts were taken care of under the laws of the land. How much does that suck? Man, if that policy was around today, I would be in jail right now. Zing! That was a little joke against my dad. That was a joke for one. Uh, hope you liked that, my sister Donna. I'm guessing you did. Uh, this may have been technically legal at the time to do for Stalin, but it was uh, most likely a veiled threat. Uh, a warning for Stalin to get his act together and quit for, uh, fraternizing with Marxist groups. 
Kiki hears of his son's uh, of her son's imprisonment, quickly goes to Teflis with money she'd borrowed from her wealthier friends to pay the tax debt. By May of 1900, the charismatic Stalin had gathered a bit of a following. He spread his Marxist knowledge through social, uh, or excuse me, through secret meetings. Uh, his first major speech was delivered to roughly 500 workers at a secret location outside the city. He called for workers to strike and indeed inspired many to do so despite, uh, despite this being a dangerous thing to do and contrary to what Marxists were doing at the time. Most were staying much further underground. On the night of March 21st, 1901, Stalin narrowly misses a roundup of local rebels uh, by the Tsar's secret police. He is on his way to work at the observatory. When he catches wind of what is happening, he stays on the tram, rides it past the observatory, never returning to that job. Then he just kind of proceeds to live off donations from sympathizers and the charity of friends uh, in the subsequent months. Things heat up further for Stalin after he helps plan a large demonstration for May Day in 1901. 3,000 protesters show up and several are wounded and 50 are arrested by Cossack police. Stalin escapes capture again. Stalin attends a meeting for the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party and is elected to one of eight positions. And then in November, Stalin commits what is likely uh, his first murder. The Russian Social Democratic Labor Party sent him to Batumi, a port city, and he uncovered one of the Tsar's secret police officers who was trying to infiltrate Marxist circles and, according to legend, has him killed. Not sure if he pulled the trigger or if someone else did it on his behalf. Local group members are divided by Stalin. Some support him in his tactics, his violence, while others fear that he is discrediting them and discrediting their cause. Stalin found a job at a local warehouse, an oil refinery owned by one of the Rothschilds, actually, the Illuminati. Uh, one night while at work, uh, the building caught on fire and workers rushed to extinguish the flames and save the building. Stalin had organized workers to demand compensation for doing so. Rothschild uh, refused initially and Stalin organized a strike. Well, on February 17th, the workers' demands were met and an additional raise was given. Everything's looking good. But then six days later, the company fires nearly 40 workers and so Stalin responds with another strike. Many of the lead strikers are arrested. Stalin organizes a protest uh, outside the prison, and they attempt to storm the, the prison, storm the building. Cossack officers arrive, kill 13 protesters, and wound over 50 more. This hits national news, and Stalin is wanted now more than ever. On the day of the funeral, Stalin hosts another demonstration that brings 7,000 participants together. On April 5th, 1902, he is arrested and then sent to a Batumi prison where he continues to spread his revolutionary propaganda and Marxist ideals. In 1903... Uh, he shipped off to Siberia for his continued troublemaking. The old Siberian exile. Nothing nothing calms a man down like a few years in Siberia. How, how sad for the people who actually choose to live in Siberia. <laughs> like how sad that your homeland just has a widely known reputation for being just kind of one of the worst shitholes on earth. <laughs> like a place that never comes up on a list of popular travel destinations. Like you never hear like, oh, where did you guys go on your honeymoon? Um, Siberia. Oh, cool. How was that? Uh, it was fucking terrible. Uh, we spent two weeks uh, bundled up in a beat-up old shack, trying not to freeze to death, and eating nothing but broth uh, made from an old boot. While in Siberia, the RSDLP splits between the Bolsheviks, Lenin, and the Mensheviks. Stalin attempts to escape on two separate occasions to join them. The first time, he is forced to return due to frostbite uh, he endures uh, thanks to the extreme conditions of Siberia. You know, fuck, damn you, Siberia, you, you freezing heartless monster. The second time, he's successful and is able to make it back to Teflis while the Russo-Japanese War begins. Stalin encourages uh, that they organize their own Georgian Marxist group, which draws anger from many other members. In the end, Stalin joins the Bolshevik movement, uh, who was the main minority group in that, uh, you know, uh, kind of in the, in the politics of that 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 area. Uh, Stalin continues to rally his cause by regularly debating with the Menshevik party and, and calling for more hard-edge movements. 
less compromised with the middle class. He was just, yeah, he's always fucking hardcore about his ideals. Uh, Things swing uh, Stalin's and the Bolsheviks' way in 1905, um, Bloody Sunday. A group of unarmed protesters who are marching towards the Winter Palace of the Tsar to deliver a petition to Tsar Nicholas II, a petition signed by more than 150,000 people asking for better working conditions, are fired upon by Imperial Guards. The official count of dead by the government lands at over 90, while the revolutionaries claim more than four thousands uh four thousand deaths though you know uh, numbers are a little off <laughs> i love that i'm guessing it's probably closer to four thousand i love the government's like nah you know we fucked up we definitely we definitely pulled the trigger uh so sorry we i think in the end we killed five or six people uh actually it was fifteen thousand. Oh, we forgot oh you know what i forgot to carry everything i forgot to carry all the numbers um, yeah, the nation is outraged. Uh, civil unrest breaks out with ethnic factions battling class or battling in classes. I'm struggling, excuse me. Stal- Stalin, among others, organizes militia style groups to keep the peace with locals, raids uh, government supplies and weapons, launches attacks on the government's Cossack police. Cossacks retaliate, killing 60 student demonstrators. And Stalin responds with the bombardment, uh, bombardment of more organized attacks. So now it's like a real revolution. Uh, November 26, 1905, Stalin is elected to one of three Georgian Bolshevik delegate positions. When Nicholas II forms that parliamentary Duma as a way to keep his people from further revolting, you know, allows people to participate, or at least feel like they're participating in the Russian government, maybe they'll calm down. Uh, this tactic would buy the Tsar, you know, about another decade to rule, and then, uh, and then shit would be over. Stalin meets Lenin for the first time this year. He respects Lenin, but has his own ideas regarding communism that we talked about earlier. Lenin recognizes Stalin's potential, encourages him to stay active in the revolution. Well, then Stalin proceeds to support the cause any way he can, man. Uh, he's robbing trains to provide funds for the Bolsheviks. Upon returning to Tiflis, he discovers that the local rebels have been subdued and instantly helps organize the assassination of the military general uh, behind uh, subduing them. He then organizes a small group of 10 trusted members of the Tiflis group, leads them through a variety of criminal and violent movements, including bank robbery, uh, movements that aid the Bolsheviks and help pay for Stalin's distribution of propaganda. I mean, he was fucking gangster. He was willing to die for his cause. In April of 1906, Stalin attends another Russian Social Democratic Labor Party conference led by the Menshevik majority. Uh, There's a lot of disagreement on how agrarian land should be handled and whether or not funds gained by robbery uh, should be allocated. Lenin and Stalin believe they should allow such funds to be dispersed. Uh, Yeah, sorry, not allocated earlier, just allowed. Like the Mensheviks were like, I don't know if we should accept stolen money. And Stalin was like, well, you're going to fucking take it. We need it. Uh, In July of 1906, Stalin marries uh, Cato uh, Svanitsi, an educated independent woman down with his communist yearnings. Uh, A woman who also softened Stalin, and he was madly in love with her. She was religious, and the hardcore atheist Stalin even agreed to marry her in a church. In September, Stalin attends another conference in Tiflis. Uh, only six of 42 delegates are Bolshevik. The remaining are Menshevik. Stalin openly despises them. On September 20th, Stalin organizes his group of 10 and they rob a steamship. His new wife, Cato, is arrested for ties to his revolutionary activities. And soon after her release, on March 18, 1907, she gives birth to Stalin's first child, a son, Yakov. Now, you might know him as Yakov Smirnov Sr., uh, father of popular 80s comedians Yakov Smirnov, uh, who's one of Stalin's grandkids. Uh, America, what's a country? No, uh, Yakov has no ties to Stalin. Pretty sure Stalin would have ha- had Yakov Smirnov killed rather than listen to one of his terribly corny comedy shows. Sorry, sorry, by the way, if you are in love with Yakov. He's probably a super nice guy. Very sorry if you are Yakov. Uh, just, uh, you know, really not my style. Just to each their own, I guess. Uh, June 26, 1907, gr- uh, Stalin's group organizes and has their uh, biggest heist, steals uh, 250,000 rubles, 
uh, or rubles, excuse me, I guess that was the Georgian uh, monetary unit, or 341,000 rubles, equivalent to around $3.86 million in uh, 2017, now 2018 money, being transported to the Imperial Bank. That's a lot. Uh, no one knows whether Stalin took part in the actual execution of the attack and the heist uh, in which his team lobbed grenades at the bank stagecoach. And it's mounted escort from uh, the tops of nearby buildings, opened fire on guards, killed up to 40 guards and some civilians, as well as a number of horses, according to contemporary reports. So, you know, 40 plus people die, but none are from his group. So uh, win for Stalin. Man, that's like, uh, I don't know if you remember that old movie, Heat, with, uh, oh, man, it was, uh, damn it, it was uh, Doc, uh, Doc Holliday from uh, Val Kilmer. There we go. It was one of my favorite Val Kilmer movies with, like, big shootouts and stuff, these bank robbers. It's like, man, he was doing that in real life. Okay, so Menshevik party members, they're angry about the uh, big, uh, you know, uh, robbery, confront him about it, the attack, but he denies it all. And then Stalin has to grieve a death that affects him greatly. His new bride, Cato, contracts typhus, dies on November 22nd, 1907, and he is beside himself. Uh, so much so that friends worry he will commit suicide and watch him closely. He loses composure, throws himself on Cato's coffin before he sees the secret police uh, approaching his wife's funeral and escapes. Unable to give his son a normal life due to the whole wanted by the government situation he's in, he, he leaves his son in the care of Cato's family. Uh, there's a well-known quote about the event. Uh, Nobody could believe Soso was so wounded. The funeral was held at the church where they had married. Stalin, pale and tearful, spoke to Joseph uh, Iramashivli, another childhood friend. This creature, he said, gesturing uh, at the open coffin, softened my heart of stone. Uh, she died, and with her died my last warm feelings for humanity. Stalin holds nothing back at this point and works with his group slash gang to commit multiple robberies, hold children of wealthy families for ransom, create counterfeit money, and kill anyone who gets in their way. On March 25th, 1908, Stalin is arrested again and sent to Siberia for exile. Between uh, 1902 and 1913, Stalin was arrested seven times and, ex and exiled six times. And while I found all kinds of articles and books that reference him being arrested, the best answer I could find regarding why he was arrested, just said revolutionary activities. Uh, he was never actually arrested for any, any robberies or violence as far as anything I could find. Uh, and, and if he had been, he probably would have been hanged rather than exiled to Siberia. He, he's lucky that the czars uh, and the, the government of Georgia were, were softer on protesters than he would later be because if Stalin had been caught helping organize labor strikes and similar activities by, say, I don't know, Stalin's government, he would have for sure been executed. In Siberia, uh, Stalin leads fellow exiled Bolsheviks and assassinates anyone suspected of being a spy. In June, he escapes from a Siberian labor camp to a nearby village disguised as a woman, makes his way from there to St. Petersburg. Uh, in 1909, he was arrested again but bribed his way out of it and then was arrested again on March 23, 1910 with his girlfriend at the time, sent back to Siberia, banned from entering the Southern Caucasus for five years. Again, what a strange punishment. Uh, I guess it's cheaper than prison. Uh, what, what if we did that? What if we just made everything like north and west of, say, Fairbanks, Alaska, just a modern day, just kind of new Siberia? And, and we just took criminals and just put them on a train that just ended like, you know, 40 miles northwest of Fairbanks and then just kicked them all out. Just built a wall that separated new Siberia from the rest of the state. Just, uh, you know, figure it out. Best of luck, everybody. Set up a few labor camps. You know, and even after prisoners finish their time, they have, to, they have to stay there, live in their little prisoner-built new Siberian villages and stuff. Such an insane thought to me that that really happened. You know, because some people were exiled to Siberian labor camps for, for crimes. 
Other people just had to fucking live there. You know, maybe they were part of some ethnic group that you know, the people in power didn't care for at the moment. They're like, get, get to Siberia. Get over there. And, and then they couldn't come back to the rest of Russia. But they also couldn't necessarily enter a new country and just take up citizenship. They just, they just lived in this sort of strange Russian purgatory. You know, just, uh, why can't we return to Russia? Because, well, to tell truth, uh, we don't like you very much. You look weird. Uh, you smell funny. Head is too small for liking. Well, can we just go to Poland and or Austria or someplace? No, no, we uh, we want you to leave. Uh, we do not want you to leave whole country. We like having some people in Siberia. Make country look bigger on map, more powerful. But it's it's terrible here. It's very hard to survive here. I know, I know. That's why you're there. That's why I I already said we don't like you. No more talk, or you know, I kill you. I kill whole family. So go back to playing with rocks or the eating of soup made of muddy ice and a stew made of poop and tears or whatever sad people do in sad, horrible place. So uh, Stalin plans to marry his girlfriend out in Siberia in a prison church, but uh, he transferred before the ceremony, never sees her again. Uh, he's having some, some tough romance right around this time. He, he then goes on to have a son with his landlady, uh, Maria Kuzikoya. Uh, while exiled, Stalin uh, left prior to Constantine being born. In later life, Constantine was forced to sign a document forbidding him to ever announce who his father was. Uh, for the remainder of 1911, Stalin was basically just you know, arrested repeatedly, exiled, and then just you know slept around, reading books while waiting out his time. 1912, Stalin is appointed editor of the Pravada Communist uh, Party newspaper. Stalin also spent a great deal of time trying to answer the question of how to incorporate various ethnic minorities of the region. Uh, Lenin believed he was the man to answer that problem, perhaps because of Stalin's own experiences as a minority. Uh, with being a Georgian, as, as well as a man who could quickly be called upon to get any job done regardless of whatever laws happened to be in place. In March of 1913, Stalin publishes the article Marxism and the National Question in an attempt to gain more support for the Bolsheviks. Lenin's very happy with it, uh, and Stalin publishes under the pseudonym of K. Stalin. These guys always publish under pseudonyms. Again, just to avoid arrest. And Joseph picks Stalin, an alias that would stick, because Stalin is loosely translated uh, in kind of old Georgian as, as steel or man of steel. You know, what a badass last name, man. The man of steel. It's fucking Superman. Who knew that the real Superman was a totalitarian Soviet asshole? Uh, shortly after publishing his article, Stalin was arrested again at a masquerade ball exiled to Siberia. Hoping to avoid another escape, he was placed in a village on the edge of the Arctic Circle, uh, Kwerakia. Uh, not sure why they just didn't kill the guy. You know, why, why? Like he just keeps fucking up. Why don't they just kill him? They just keep throwing him back to Siberia, and he just keeps coming back. Uh, why? Why give him so many chances? I don't understand. But while in this village, he has an affair. This is creepy. Uh, super creepy. He has an affair with a thirteen-year-old girl, uh, Lydia uh, Perovgia, uh, who is one year under the age of consent. They have a child together, but the child doesn't survive. She becomes pregnant a second time, births a son named Alexander in April of nineteen seventeen. After Stalin leaves exile, fucking gross. Stalin was 35 when he got together with this poor Siberian orphan. I don't know if I mentioned he was an orphan. Uh, I get that life may have been a little different in a small village in the Arctic fringes of Siberia, but shacking up with a 13-year-old? I get that kings used to take you know child brides in Europe not that far back before Stalin, but somehow th that seems even less gross than what Stalin did. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe it was all gross. Maybe creepy dudes just got away with being pedophiles back then. Uh, you know, if someone went through puberty, I guess they were fair game. I, I do know Stalin almost got arrested for some sort of sex crime for shacking up with this girl, even for backwoods, you know, Arctic Siberia. 13 was still too young. 14, you know, being the cutoff. It's so weird because my son is 12. Kyler is 12. I'm 40. What Stalin did 
is comparable to me shacking up with one of Kyler's classmates, which is just abhorrent. It's so gross. I don't know why I'm fixating on this. The guy would go on to cause the death of millions. In the big scheme of things, getting a 13-year-old pregnant, not once but twice, kind of low on the list of Stalin's worst deeds. I guess, I don't know, maybe just a communist way. Maybe that was a part of the revolution, you know, getting to sex up young girls. Chikatilo, the butcher of Rostov, you know, he was real into being a communist, and, you know. He did take a great pride in being a good communist, and he did love having sex with kids. Maybe maybe he was just too communist. Maybe he was just too into it. You know, what's his big deal? I know bad guy. I good, strong communist. I only choke out kids too weak and worthless to fight back. I weed out weak kid wrestlers to keep Mother Russia strong and healthy. If if kid uh, cannot ha- handle limp, uh, cock of shame, uh, how kid grow up and fight capitalist pigs? Russia, what a country. I don't know. October 1916. Exiled Bolsheviks are conscript, uh, conscripted to join the military effort in World War One. Stalin is deemed unfit for battle by a medical examiner in February of 1917 due to his crippled arm, which humiliates him. Uh, may have also saved his life. When Tsar Nicholas abdicates the throne and the February Revolution takes place, you know, Stalin was still in exile and still alive. Uh, after exile, Stalin takes full control of the Pravda in 1917. Again, that famous Russian propaganda paper. The Pravda would become the main propaganda vehicle for Stalin's Soviet Union. And let's talk about the future of Stalin's propaganda for a second. Uh, having perfected his techniques while acting as editor of the Pravada, uh, Stalin would become a master of propaganda, constantly worked to maintain his image and the image of a successful, bountiful country. Stalin had artists, poets, and the like depict him in statues, portraits, poems, uh, and more. As a father-like figure over the country, he was omnipresent, a hero of the proletariat, uh, a fierce protector with a stern, disciplining hand. He created a cult of personality. Uh, sounds a bit like Kim Jong-un and his father and grandfather, right? Man, when a leader starts having statues of themselves built around the country, get real fucking nervous. Uh, all news was controlled and false images created to show that the glory of Russia, the bounty of harvest, grain was often put on top of props that were used to fill empty containers and make it appear that the containers were just overflowing with grain when they were in fact nearly empty. Uh, history was rewritten. Stalin was depicted as a much more uh, involved fighter during the revolution, a hero of the revolution, when in fact, you know, he was exiled in Siberia for most of it. Uh, Trotsky was later slandered and eventually removed entirely from most historical texts. Capitalism was harshly criticized. Pictures were altered to remove people from situations in which Stalin didn't want them to be there. Cities and structures were named after Stalin. Uh, the state controlled all information and killed or imprisoned anyone who Stalin took issue with or publicly criticized him or even possibly criticized him. The propaganda was so effective that the country went into deep mourning at his death. He controlled everything, their education, food, future, death, all of it. Now he was gone. There was immense fear of what would happen next without the father of Russia. You know, just rewrote his own history and convinced a giant nation that he was their great savior. Ended up killing almost everyone who knew the real story. What an odd reality to create. Uh, you know what? I want to try it. Let's, let's do it. Okay, from here forward, here's my backstory. My new backstory is that I am the greatest two-sport athlete of all time. Sure, I've dabbled in comedy, but only when I wasn't fucking crushing 80 to 100 home runs a year, every year, for whatever team won the World Series during the year I played with him. Because I won every year. I won the World Series every single year. I also threw for 2,500 touchdown passes over 15 seasons, and I caught another 700 touchdown passes. I caught over 100 touchdown passes that I fucking threw for whatever team won the Super Bowl that year. Let it be known from here forward. All right, back to the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, Stalin works with Lenin to move the party forward despite often being at odds with what Lenin wants. Uh, 
Lenin is currently still helping the revolution from afar, still uh, from his self-imposed exile in Europe. Stalin continues to work closely with Lenin, maintaining a good relationship despite differing opinions. Stalin took charge of Lenin's safety at times, and in turn, Lenin continued to advance Stalin's career. Uh, Lenin returned to Petrograd, uh, formerly St. Petersburg, and October on October 10th, excuse me, secured a majority vote in favor of a coup. On October 24th, police raid the Bolshevik newspaper office. On October 25th, Stalin joins Lenin for a central committee meeting where they will direct the coup. Bolshevik militia overtakes the electric grid system. This is kind of badass. State banks, post office, multiple bridges, and telephone system. They just take control over everything. Bolsheviks take their ship. They have a ship, the Aurora, to the Winter Palace of the Tsar where the provisional government is convening an open fire. The government almost immediately surrenders and is immediately arrested by the Bolsheviks. How fucking good was that day for Lenin, Stalin, and their cronies, man? They successfully took down a government. Can't even imagine what an adrenaline rush that would be. There was some vodka drank that night. Uh, and then all hell breaks loose. The Russian Civil War begins, lasts all the way through 1921 with the Red Army, the Bolsheviks, battling the White Army, anti-Bolsheviks. Uh, the White Army was basically comprised of everyone but the Bolsheviks. You know, included monarchists, capitalists, supporters of democratic socialism. Leon Trotsky is given control of the Red Army, proves to be an excellent commander under difficult times. Uh, he had an army of 3 million and had war efforts at times on 16 different fronts. With the victory of the Red Army, Stalin, Lenin, and Trotsky are now in control of the country. And Stalin publicly proclaims that no 13-year-old girl will be safe from his hard-to-steal communist cock. Okay, maybe he doesn't proclaim that, but he may have thought it based on what we know about him. But you know who never thinks things like that? Our next sponsor. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by Lisa, a company Stalin would have never allowed to exist uh, because they make life far too comfortable for his rigid authoritarian tastes. Driven by the mission to provide a better place to sleep for everybody, Lisa is an innovative, direct-to-consumer, online mattress brand that is also socially conscious. And that's not some Stalinist propaganda. That's truth. For every 10 mattresses Lisa sells, they donate one to a shelter through their 110 program. They plant one tree for every mattress sold and donate 1% of each employee's time to volunteer for local causes. They've exiled absolutely zero people to Siberia ever. They're one of Forbes' top 20 startups to watch, and I love the quality sleep I get on my Lisa mattress each night that I am home. So does my dog Penny. Yeah, she seems uh, even more rested than normal. Her and her little pampered life of leisure, uh, she seems a little more rested after a quality night's you know, sleep on a Lisa mattress. So try a Lisa mattress in your own home for 100 nights risk-free. I can't recommend it enough. Available in the U.S., U.K., Canada, Germany online with free shipping. This 100% American-made mattress ships compressed in a box right to your door. Or try it at the Lisa Dream Gallery in Soho, New York City and Virginia Beach, and over 80 West Elm stores nationwide. And best part, get $100 off. That's right, $100 off when you go to L-E-E-S-A, lisa.com, slash timesuck. All right, and now uh, back to misery and Stalin. Trotsky was considered to be the better orator uh, of the three, better liked, so he was uh, you know, given opportunities to be the public face of the party that Stalin was not. Additionally, as the main military leader of the victorious side of the Civil War, he was clearly second in command to Lenin. Stalin had tons of enemies and was often kept more kind of behind the scenes, you know, and he was outranked by Trotsky. He's a bit of a loose cannon. He and Trotsky struggled to find common ground over such things as whether or not the state should control trade unions. Trotsky favored state control. Stalin did not. 
Trotsky always disagreed with Lenin on various communist principles, uh, which led to a rift between Lenin and Trotsky that would be Trotsky's downfall because Stalin was able to use this rift to his advantage and get closer to Lenin. He was a sneaky bastard. Trotsky was the uh, obvious choice as successor to Lenin publicly uh, in the early days of Lenin's regime, but Stalin was just too crafty, man. He'd been given, compared to Trotsky, a relatively low-level Communist Party position, but one that uh, had a key feature to it, one that allowed him to appoint Communist Party members, and he used that to his advantage big time. He just started replacing Trotsky supporters amidst the ranks with you know people who supported him, with his own allies, and he just did this for years. Just taking out the uh, kind of foundation of the party out from underneath Trotsky. Smart dude. Between 1922 and 1924, Lenin sees what Stalin is up to and starts vocally showing more support for Trotsky, tries to slow Stalin's influence, and then Lenin dies in 1924. And Stalin, because of the support from the party he's been slowly rebuilding and his image emerges as leader, having quietly outplayed Trotsky and isolated him. Lenin actually wrote out a manifest of sorts uh, in preparation for his death. He had a stroke in 1918. While recovering from surgery to remove a bullet to his neck, taken in an assassination attempt in 1918, and in his final testament, he made it clear that he wanted Trotsky, despite their differences, to succeed him as head of the Communist Party. But Stalin was able to intercept this document, make alliances with a few other high-ranking communists. He was able to keep Lenin's testament a secret until it was too late, until he'd already consolidated power within the party, and then he exiled or killed any and all who opposed his rule. Stalin continued to diminish Trotsky's role until he eventually exiled him, as we already know, and, you know, Trotsky left for Mexico where he'd meet his ice axe fate. Uh, 1928, Stalin initiates – you know, now he's in charge, and he initiates what he uh, called his first five-year plan. And this would last from uh, October 1st, 1928 to December 31st, 1932, and uh, he has great ambitions for Mother Russia. He wants it to become an industrial superpower as fast as possible, and he demands an increase of 110% in coal production, 200% in iron, 335% in electric power, and a 600% increase in sexy-ass 13-year-olds. Sorry, I just can't stop thinking about his Siberian child lover, just fucking predator. Uh, to accomplish this massive, these massive increases, he gives the Russian people some interesting uh, incentive. He announces that workers' individual performance records will be posted publicly. <laughs> and underperformers will be punished and humiliated. What a, what a fun new policy. Uh, this fun new policy leads to a decline in attendance. Workers don't want to show up just to be embarrassed. This, in turn, uh, leads to some strict uh, you know, more rules. If workers are late, they're lazy, they're not meeting their quota, they could be accused of sabotaging the five-year plan. So don't show up and you're a saboteur. And if found guilty, they could just be shot just on the spot, you know, just fucking firing squad, whatever, just bullet to the head, or sent to slave labor camps, the gulags. The old get to the gulag gag. Such a such a fun joke to play on someone. Just, uh, hey, comrade, uh, how about you put in four more hours of work uh, today? But I, I am so very hungry, and I am so tired already. Oh, maybe trip for a whole family to Siberian gulag for five or twenty years. Uh, be nice, really fresh for you. Or a vacation of sort. Maybe you'll not be so tired and hungry after gulag. <laughs> no, no, please. I, w- I work more. I eat less. Please. This is death sentence for a family. I'm so sorry. I just kidding. <laughs> I just I just pull old gulag gag on you, comrade. Go home, Petrov. Eat. Rest. <laughs> really? Thank you, comrade. Of course, of course. It's no big deal. Oh, thank you for mercy, comrade. I'm so tired and hungry. I go home now. That was trick. 
That was trick. Why not you want sacrifice for Mother Russia? You sabotage five-year plan. Now you go to Gulag for real. Seriously. Whole family leave on train tomorrow morning or everyone killed by afternoon. Get good out of here. So let's talk about these gulags. Uh, Gulag was the acronym for the Main Administration of Corrective Labor Camps. Apparently the acronym uh, works better in Russian. Uh, Thanks to Article 58 of the Russian SFSR Penal Code, put in force on February 25th, 1927, anyone suspected of counter-revolutionary activities, essentially anyone deemed not loyal enough to the Soviet Union, could be arrested. So, you know, this law basically just allowed anyone to be arrested just for anything. So that sounds fun. Uh, Article 58 uh, was used to round up anyone not in good standing with the Communist Party, anyone not valuable enough to the Communist Party, and they could just ship them off to various gulags for slave labor. And then just to keep things interesting, uh, a few actual scary criminals, a few violent offenders would also be sent to the gulags, you know, just to kind of keep everybody else in check. Some form of the gulag system had been in effect already since the early 1900s, but it grew dramatically under Stalin's reign. Uh, they were often located in harsh, isolated areas of the country on the fringes of civilization. And women, children, and men could all be in a gulag. You know, it wasn't, wasn't just for grown dudes. Uh, using gulag labor, massive industrial undertakings were achieved because death tolls did not matter to Stalin. For example, the White Sea Canal was completed with slave labor from the gulags. It's a 141-mile-long canal connecting the White Sea to Lake Onega. Anywhere from 25,000 to 100,000 lives were lost in its construction, and it was built in 20 months. So bad news, 100,000 lives lost. Good news, project completed several weeks ahead of schedule. So pretty cool. Uh, At one point, there were 476 gulag camps spread throughout Stalin's Russia. And you can explore the history of gulags today if you're, if you're a particularly adventurous tourist. The Russian city of uh, Vorkuta, the fourth largest city inside the Arctic City Circle in the world at roughly 70,000 residents, uh, far down from the well over 200,000 residents in the 80s before the uh, areas of many coal mines were closed, began as a Stalin-era gulag. Uh, the Vorkut, Vork, God damn it. Uh, Vorkutlag established in 1932. It had an average temperature, this place where it does you know, now – Negative 20 degrees Celsius, negative 4 degrees Fahrenheit in February. In July, it gets up to about 13 degrees Celsius, 55 degrees Fahrenheit. So, you know, it's a fucking terrible place to live. From uh, 1931 to 1957, 2 million prisoners from the USSR and 21 other countries passed through the gulag system in this place. Local historians say that there are more than 200,000 political prisoners buried in the permafrost in marked and unmarked graves. Uh, it once heaved with so many political prisoners from so many countries that this uh, this graveyard earned the nickname Capital of the World. Ugh. And what was life like in these gulags? Uh, terrible, in a word. Really, really, really terrible. Similar to life in a North Korean labor camp, you know. Uh, there was a constant threat of rape, as reported by this camp rape witness. Uh, said, an excited group of prisoners uh, – I'm not going to try to do that in Russian. This is too much. An excited group of prisoners gathered around a, a bench next to the wall, recalled Janice Barduk. Those in the back row were jumping up, trying to see over the heads and shoulders of those in front who were shouting obscenities and holding their penises. Uh, A young man lay on his stomach in the baths, and another man lay on top of him, embracing him around the chest and moving his hips back and forth. Uh, His back was tattooed with shackles, chains, and the popular Soviet slogan, work is an act of honor, courage, and heroism. On both sides were trumpeting angels. He breathed heavily while the young man underneath moaned and cried out. The spectators shouted, I caught sight of the young man's grimacing face jesus really sucked to be that guy that day just a crowd of other gulag prisoners watching some poor dude anally raped uh like it was a sport like it was like a boxing match or something 
<laughs> the more I learn about communist Russia, just the more I understand the creation of the monster of Chikatilo. You know, what's the big deal? The guy's just wrestling. Put on a good show for a crowd. Uh, sounds fun. I see no tragedy. This normal Russian Wednesday afternoon. It's no big deal. I, I also found this description of a gang rape occurring on the way to the Gulag. This is even more disturbing. We were taken to the ship. We were marching five abreast, as always, in columns, five abreast surrounded by guards on all sides, guard dogs, German shepherds, all around guards with machine guns. They loaded us aboard, and the first thing that happened was the female criminals, the people from the criminal underworld, began to rob us of our own clothes. They made the women strip. The women resisted. They yelled. Uh, they batted. Uh, if it got so bad that if if the criminals liked your underwear, they made you sleep naked, naked, and you toss and tossed you some flea-infested rags in return. So this is from a, a female gulag uh, prisoner's experience. The prisoners in one of the men's holds found a pickaxe. They pierced a hole through the wall into the women's hold with a pickaxe. And then the men, the criminals, began filling the women's hold, and they gang-raped the women. Fuck my god. Pickaxing your way through a wall for a massive gang rape. Right? These gulag prisoners are just reduced to being subhumans. Imagine this, you know, poor, poor uh, female prisoner. You show up, and then the other women, the, the toughest women, are fucking slapping you around, taking your clothes, just, you know, forcing you just to sleep with, you know, either rags or just naked in some cold, I'm sure, horrific, you know, floor. And then you got the dudes literally just burrowing through the wall just to, you know, be raped by a whole bunch of dude criminals. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, yeah, there was a constant threat of starvation and physical violence, as told by one former inmate. Saying how much bread you got depended on how much timber you had cut the day before. So this is one, you know, Siberian work camps. A tally that that really could be the difference between life and death. Those who met a hundred percent of their punishing targets, a physical impossibility for most men, earned nine hundred grams of bread, about two pounds, while those returning only fifty percent of their targets got only three hundred grams of bread. So, you know, that's, that's significantly less than a pound. Uh, made from rye, which had not been thoroughly cleaned. This black bread was the source of gulag life and carefully hoarded throughout the day. Uh, a little with the breakfast soup. Oh, fucking breakfast. This breakfast soup sounds terrible. It's just a few bites during the short dinner break at midday. More with soup in the evening. Ah, so much fucking soup. You know, it was just brothy, like fucking boot, tongue, radish soup, some horrible shit. Uh, you know, a little bit in the morning. Evening to stay off the inevitable pangs of hunger after 12 hours of cutting and stacking logs. If a prisoner stole clothes or tobacco and was discovered, he could expect a good beating from his fellow inmates. But the unwritten law of this camp was anyone caught stealing another man's bread earned a death sentence. An accident was not difficult to arrange in the forest. Ugh. And these stories are just what could happen to you at the hands of fellow prisoners. You could also be killed or raped by the guards at any time. And even if you weren't starving or being beaten or being raped, you, you were being literally worked to death in many camps. 12-plus-hour days of breaking rock, you know, to dig a canal or, you know, cutting, stacking that wood, tunneling to, to, uh, for a coal mine, just, you know, et cetera. Just horrible, horrible back-breaking labor. All this for something as little as a, a neighbor ratting you out to secret police for seeming, you know, kind of suspicious or for just not liking you. Fun times. Uh, so now, now let's talk uh, about another form of hell on earth Stalin created, uh, collective farming. Stalin seized all farms and factories, and he, and he completely overhauled the Russian ag agrarian economy. Farmland is redistributed with private – no private, excuse me, ownership into collectivist farms. How much would that suck, by the way, if you're already a successful farmer? Man, the revolution did not work out in your favor, you know? The government just takes your shit, redistributes it, fuck that – and actually, actually, as I, I read too, also probably kills you. For being some, you know, uh, smarty pants farmer, you know, they didn't want you fucking telling their, their laborers how to do their work. 
You know, the, the big landowners were just usually just killed after the revolution by Stalin. I, I know it's not totally rational and it's not like I have the military training to withstand a military takeover, but reading this does make me want to run out and buy so many more guns. Wolverines. Little little Red Dawn reference, if you don't know. Uh, the, the goal of collective farming, besides putting even more power into the hands of a totalitarian regime, is that fewer people will be able to work together on larger sections of land and reap higher amounts of food, allowing more of the population to move into cities, to work on infrastructure, and in the newly built factories. You know, just some communist efficiency. Uh, you know, be efficient or get to the gulag. Uh, this means that people were d- displaced from land they had worked on all their lives, that their family had worked on before them. Uh, this system also removed, uh, you know, power from the Kulak landowners, the wealthier class, and uh, you know they were deemed hostile to the movement. Unfortunately, they also, unfortunately, they also knew how to farm and were no longer in charge of these farms. So that's you know it doesn't make a lot of logical sense. Peasants were assigned plots of land to work collectively, and these are people with no prior farming experience. A lot of times, were tasked with impossible quotas. Government officials came to collect and often took every ounce of food grown, leaving none for the farmers who actually harvested it. You know, this collectivized farming exp- experiment created that whole Ukrainian famine, the Holomador, that Chikatilo was raised in. Remember, remember that? Just, you know, his early childhood. Well, it was a big deal, so I starve off and on through childhood. It's built character. It's exciting sometimes to starve, but then barely live, only to starve again almost. Uh, malnutrition maybe why Chikatilo did not work right, but everyone have cross to bear. I love Russia. Only in Russia can starving predator like me keep getting job after job and keep attacking children. What a country. Yeah, it's just fucking insanity uh, in communist Russia, uh, especially rough in Ukraine in the early 1930s. 1932 and 1933, Stalin cordoned off Ukraine to prevent escape because it was so shitty there. People were just trying to get the fuck out. Uh, he wanted to you know, prevent news from getting out to the rest of the country about how bad it was there so no evidence could be collected or reported. Propaganda had been created showing bountiful bins and wagons like we talked about earlier, full from the good harvest. You know, and, and anything mentioned uh, contrary to that resulted in harsh punishment, exile, execution. The famously fertile land had been destroyed in a failed attempt at collectivizing the farms. German uh, – or excuse me, government quotas, they were impossible to meet. State officials worsened local situations by demanding that not only grain grown be handed over to the state but all foods grown. No food can now be grown for personal consumption or sale so the people actually farming the land are starving. And again, we talked about that in the Chikatilo episode, just the fucking crazy irony there. Nearly all farmers, the original landowners, you know, they've been imprisoned during the purges leaving the land to peasants who didn't know what to do. The result was an estimated 5 million people dying from starvation across the Soviet Union, nearly 4 million in Ukraine. Uh, Ukrainians ate everything to survive during this time. Shoe leather, farm animals, pets, rodents, frogs, leaves, grass, and when they could find nothing else, cannibalism ensued. A lot of this only recently is being recognized and discussed. It was a source of great shame for both the government and the survivors. However, silver lining... The number of workers in industry, construction, and transport does grow in that first five-year period from 4.6 million to 12.6 million. So, what? yeah, oh man, what dedicated industrious wouldn't take a you know a little cannibalism for that kind of growth? Stalin, you know, he he was willing to sacrifice anyone for his industrial goals. Well, in 1931, at the first conference of workers, Stalin delivers an, uh, an impassioned speech commanding workers to play a crucial role in industrialization. He says, we are 50 or 100 years behind the advanced countries. We must make up this gap in 10 years. Either we do it or they will crush us. In 1932, Stalin's second wife, uh, Nadezhda Alloway, a woman he'd married in 1919 when he was 39 and she was 16 because he's a creep, uh, kills herself at the age of 31. Stalin had met Nadisa when she was 10 to make it even creepier during one of his Siberian exiles. 
Man, he loved just finding kids when he's out in Siberia, didn't he? Uh, her father had allowed Stalin to live with the family. And she killed herself because she was distraught over Stalin no longer being sexually attracted to her now that she looked like an adult. Uh, despite her attempts at dressing up in pigtails and uh, wearing a woman's version of a young uh, kind of child's doll dress and constantly looking on a lollipop, uh, which she, I guess, did daily the last several years of her life. No, she did not. Uh, she did not dress like that or lick lollipops, but the rest of it is true. Uh, he really did meet her when she was only 10, lived with her family in Siberia. I have no documentation to prove that he was attracted to her at that time or that he lost interest in her as she grew into her early 30s. But considering his history, yeah, maybe. He's a dirtbag. Creepy to marry a girl as soon as she's barely an adult. Uh, even creepier when, when you met her when you were in your early 30s and she was 10. Uh, he really did seem like a pedophile of some sort. Clearly liked him young. And he, and he was notoriously unfaithful to his partners. Dude was uh, 5'4", wore platform shoes, and was self-conscious about his small size, and had a serious Napoleon complex. Now he had to prove how much of a man he was. Had to bed many, many women. And he had a young girl complex. And, you know, combining those two, God, who knows how many young teens he had sex with. But anyway, Nadizia did kill herself, which, you know, kind of uncommon for the leader of a nation's wife. She actually shot herself after confronting Stalin about the Ukrainian famine and about the purges that were going on that he had ordered and, uh, and just receiving kind of contempt in return from him. So what purges, you ask? I referenced that earlier. Well, uh, Stalin had begun exiling, sending to gulags, and outright executing anyone he deemed a threat for his vision to Russia or to his vision for Russia and his seat on the proverbial throne. Fellow communists he suspected of not being loyal enough. College professors who came across a little too liberal for his tastes. Basically anyone else who said anything that the world's greatest you know, communists didn't agree with were liable to lose their lives and often did. And, uh, you know, and then his wife took her life. Uh, so here's how those purges worked. Uh, for the first trials of Stalin's great purge, Stalin would force public trials on people he brought kind of trumped up charges against. And uh, people who, you know, he was concerned about rebelling prior to trial, they'd be tortured. Uh, their families would be threatened. Uh, they'd be interrogated until, quote, unquote, confessions were signed. And then their admission of guilt would be paraded and the trials were, you know, just pure propaganda, just for show. Stalin was saving the country from another war at the hands of treasonous rebels who wanted to destroy their beautiful nation full of all this bountiful grain. Uh, after a few initial public trials, private trials then continue at length. You know, where torture threats you know, go on to get those confessions. Many of the criminals uh, started uh, as old prominent Bolsheviks that Stalin just needed out of the way. Stalin's secret police uh, led the way for this under his very watchful eye and effectively just eliminated anyone who may have thought anything challenging uh, or a thought about challenging him. And all this happened in, in two short years from 1936 to 1938, the, the, the big parts of these purges. First, Stalin and his crew came after the old Bolsheviks, then the military officials, then government officials. They moved on to wealthy farmers, artists, intellectuals, foreigners, minorities, scientists, anyone that pissed Stalin off uh, you know, or, or pissed off a member of his secret police. In the end, he killed or imprisoned everyone in this country who could have, uh, ironically, most helped him lead it to success. His extreme paranoia just deleted experts in academia, agriculture, military, crippling his own goals. The official number of purge victims stands at 1,548,366 detained person, uh, of which whom 681,692 were shot. An average of 1,000 executions a day. Uh, various historians claim that the real number of victims could be twice that much. That's so much killing. So much killing. Uh, the first purge trial was in August 1936. Three prominent Bolsheviks who helped uh, in the October Revolution, right? Guys who helped get fucking Stalin into power. Uh, and 13 co-defendants were accused of joining Leon Trotsky and creating a terrorist organization to unseat Stalin. 
and uh, Stalin pinned assassinations on him, which Stalin had probably likely been involved in himself, actually, actually, and ordered them all to be executed upon finding them guilty. And they'd usually be executed like the same day. Uh, the second trial found four prominent members of the Soviet regime and 17 others charged with collaborating with Trotsky, committing various acts of sabotage, working for Japan and Germany. All were found guilty. guilty. Four were given 10-year sentences, and the rest were executed. Uh, the third trial was in March of 1938. This one effectively claimed that they had missed some folks in the first trial. Two prominent leaders from counter-Marxist groups in the 20s and 20, uh, yeah, in, in the 20s and 1921, including other prominent figures such as well-respected doctors, other co-defendants were charged with conspiracy, assassination, and espionage. All but three were found guilty and sentenced to death. I guess they left uh, the three out just to make it look like it was a fair trial. This one was uh, hard for the world uh, and public to swallow as it was so clearly absurd and included charges against known loyal Marxists and prominent intellectuals. Uh, additionally, one defendant during this trial did plead not guilty. Uh, did it in court, changed his stance after having signed over his confession. You know, The following day, he returns to court with a dislocated shoulder amongst other injuries and proceeds to plead guilty. So they just fucking beat him into a <laughs> change of his mind. And his young wife and infant son were threatened, and promises were then made to keep them safe if he played along. Well, despite those promises, or promises after his execution, his wife was just immediately sent to the gulag. Man, that guy was a motherfucker. Stalin uh, also had his two heads of the NKDV police, the first and then his successor, charged and executed. No one was safe, right? Even if you did exactly what Stalin told you to do, you could end up knowing too much and still be killed. The NKDV, the secret police, they were allowed to conduct their own trials that took place uh, in the moment on site or behind closed doors. And you could be found charged, uh, you could be found, charged, found guilty, and imprisoned, and then executed all within the same day. Uh, these groups were called the uh, Troika, uh, kulaks or wealthier farmers who refused to work on collective farms or were otherwise resistant to the changes being made in the agrarian community. They were also imprisoned or killed, adding the struggle to have productive farming, uh, likely aiding the famine. And then there was those you know, academics. Roughly 2,000 academics and artists were also convicted, and 1,500 uh, died in prisons and camps. Trotsky was the final prominent figure that had to go. Uh, then that military purge, you know, following the great purge, you know, he enacted that military purge, you know, a lot of uh, closed door trials that targeted top military officials. You know, by the end, he effectually destroyed his own military. He killed or imprisoned all of his country's best leaders and fighters. Uh, in the end, three of uh, five of his top marshals, top commanders, uh, 13 of 15 army commanders, eight of nine admirals, 50 of 57 army corps commanders, 154 of 186 division commanders, 16 of 16 army commissars. And 25 of 28 Army Corps commissars were all removed and executed. That is insane for us. This concept of a purge, which is seemingly, like for Americans today, a far-fetched horror movie franchise, was reality for a lot of Russians back then. Rumors uh, even circulated that Stalin imprisoned his own soldiers upon their return from war. Uh, he viewed them as failures, worried about the impact their international exposure may have had on his ideals. Dude, was cold-blooded even to his own soldiers, the very men fighting to keep his regime alive. When asked by German leaders if correspondence could be set up between their Russian captives, five to six million people in total, and their families, Stalin refused. And this is during World War II, saying, there are no Soviet prisoners of war. The Soviet soldier fights on till death. If he chooses to become prisoner, he is automatically excluded from the Russian community. Fuck! Many millions died in German hands because they were already dead to Stalin, having allowed themselves to be captured. Uh, 
Again, I think of Chikatilo when I read this, man. If you recall, uh, his father was one of those shameful soldiers who had allowed themselves to be captured by the Germans. And instead of returning home uh, from war a hero, he returned home to be mocked uh, by his community and uh, to raise a child fathered by a German soldier who had raped his wife. Right, Chikatilo himself would be teased throughout his childhood for having a coward for a father. Think about how crazy that is. Uh, think about how crazy a world is where Senator McCain, John McCain, would, would never have been allowed to run for any political office because he would have been a coward instead of a national hero for you know uh, surviving enemy internment. Stalin was so hardcore about making sure his soldiers fought to the death, he was such a heartless piece of shit, he passed Order Number 270, demanding that his military fight to death instead of surrender under penalty of severe consequence and threat to family. Soldiers... Having been exposed to how others in Europe were living, began to reflect on their own dire situation in Russia, and the concept of surrender or defecting became very tempting. So he passes that order number 270 saying there are no Soviet prisoners of war, only traitors. Thousands are deprived of food and aid and die because a family member had been a traitor and allowed themselves to be captured. So, you know, to, to keep them from just running away to another country, he, you know, makes it known that their families back home are going to suffer if they leave or become captured. And as terrible as all this was, though, under this oppressive new atmosphere of fear and death, his plan to industrialize Russia did work. Uh, Stalin's industrial goals did succeed at the cost of basically everything else. Uh, cities were thrown together. Structures were erected in great speed. Output was uh, always under quota. Books were filled with forged numbers in an attempt to save lives, as anyone who underperformed would be punished and were sent to the gulags. But USSR did become a leading industrial nation. So, uh, you know, I guess for him, uh, totally worth it. Now let's jump back to his five-year plans. Okay, the second plan, 1933 to 1937, focuses on heavy industry. Uh, that's given top priority. Goals are eased as a reward for meeting goals in the first plan. Uh, incentives are now part of the deal instead of uh, instead of just punishments. Women are encouraged to join the workforce. Child care is now offered. The Soviet Union becomes one of the top steel-producing countries in the world under the second five-year plan. Oh, and before things sound too good, the quality of life greatly diminishes for everyone as very little attention is paid to consumer goods. Uh, so they're making everything for like industry, you know, like military and stuff, but they're not making actually like, you know, things to leave a fucking comfortable life, uh, live a comfortable life. The first uh, two five-year plans increase the industrial capacity of the USSR dramatically in all major fields, steel, coal, electric power, uh, create new manufacturing sectors indispensable to any great power, automobiles, aviation, chemicals, plastics. Consequently, the first two five-year plans laid the foundation for the industrial might of the Soviet Union, especially in the military plant or a military field. So despite all this evil, he does, uh, through brute force, just just forge Soviet the Soviet Union ahead into an industrial military power. Uh, okay, so now the third plan, 1938 to 1941. The first two years uh, of this plan are disappointing. And then after three years, World War II interrupts the plan. All right, on August 29th, 1939, Nazi and Russian forces signed a non-aggression pact that effectively meant both countries had agreed to stay out of each other's way and not attack each other. I did not know that before this. Uh, this was a massive public statement that caused a lot of stress for the rest of the world and was shocking given the historic animosity between the two countries. Uh, maybe I did actually come across. Anyway, additionally, they signed a secret pact to divvy Europe uh, up between them. That's right. Hitler and Stalin were in cahoots. Stalin and Hitler were known actually to quietly appreciate each other's work and tactics. Uh, Stalin annexed parts of Poland, Romania, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, and launched an attack on Finland. Uh, for a while, things went as planned, but then the Western Front began to bolster and prove more difficult than initially thought for the Germans. Uh, 
It didn't look as though Britain would fall. The Allies were gaining footholds in many locations. The Germans were also watching Russia's failure at their winter war, and they realized that their current partner may be an easier target than an asset. And they, and they switched directions you know, uh, and, and came after Russia, moving east, the easier target instead of continuing west, which also for mili- military historians, you know, is, is, is probably a good reason why uh, you know, the Nazis lost their war is because they decided to fight a war on two fronts instead of just focusing their energy on one side. Anyway, June of 1941, Germans attack Russia, breaking the non-aggression pact. Stalin is stunned. He doesn't see this coming. His shock leads to a slow response that results in thousands and thousands and thousands of casualties. Uh, Stalin had ignored warnings from his own intelligence to U.S. and Britain and was completely unprepared for this. As Germans invaded Russia, heading to Moscow, Stalin employs the scorched earth method of burning and destroying his own country's goods so that the Germans can't have them. Uh, man, dude was just fucking ruthless. Just did what it takes to get things done the way he wanted them to. Uh, Russia turns it around at the Battle of Stalingrad in August of 1942, last till February 1943. Stalin joins allies, uh, allied initiatives to battle Germany, all while still planning on expanding Russian territory. Uh, World War II could not have won, been won by the Allies without Stalin's help, which was acknowledged by Churchill and Truman, although their distrust of Stalin continued and resulted in the Cold War. And despite World War II's interruption of his, five, or his third five-year plan, despite heavy, heavy losses, Russia does continue to grow into a world power during this time. An overall rate of annual industry growth averaged 12 to 13% in the 40s, which is virtually unheard of. And, and that growth rate continued into the 50s. A quick glance, this seems to have been about double the growth rate of the U.S. that time, which was also doing very well. So, you know, dude was a motherfucker, heartless bastard, but without him, Russia likely would not have became a world power. Uh, who knows if Trotsky would have industrialized as effectively as Stalin did? Probably not. He just was not as ruthless, not as singularly focused. Okay, the fourth and fifth uh, five-year plans were the fir- fourth from 1946, 1950, the fifth, 1951, 1955, focus on reconstruction after the war. Uh, outside of Poland, the USSR was the hardest hit during World War II, and the nation was left in ruins. Casualties, as many as 20 million, left many job vacancies. Animals, farms, buildings, factories gone or destroyed. The USSR could not agree to terms with the U.S. for a loan to aid Reconstruction. Uh, Reparations are received from Germany and other European countries uh, who pay Russia for having saved them, which does help with some funding. And then during his fifth five-year plan, the cruel, cruel dictator dies. He suffers a cerebral hemorrhage, and on March 1st, 1953, uh, he, he suffers a hemorrhage, and then he is dead by March 5th, and the country mourns profusely. Of course they do. They have been brainwashed to love him. Uh, he lives to be 74, uh, and there is speculation by some historians that he may have been poisoned due to suspicious autopsy results. We'll never know for certain, and that does take us out of this time suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. So Stalin's dead. And the Soviet Union he built on his ideals mourns for him. You know, as openly as Russians mourn for him, I bet privately uh, a lot of Russians celebrated. You know, just fuck you, Stalin. If you could have only died long, uh, slow death uh, before sending father and cousin to Gulag. Brother fighting war for you and then labeled traitor, even though you never fight on front lines once in yourself in your life. I hope devil fuck you like you fucked Siberian child lover. Actually, they probably didn't think that because they probably believed all his bullshit. Stalin really was such a piece of shit, you know? Just ch- check out the story on his relationship with his firstborn son, Yakov. This is – if you didn't already think he was a monster, check this out. 
Yakov, Stalin's firstborn son, once tried to commit suicide but did not die. Stalin remarked that Yakov can't even shoot straight. Then Yakov goes to join the Red Army, and he's taken prisoner by German Nazis. So uh, Stalin uh, has Yakov's wife sent to the Gulag for two years, separating her uh, from their three-year-old daughter, his granddaughter, right, because her husband was dumb enough to get captured. And then later, uh, Nazis offer a trade for Yakov, one of their commanders, in exchange for you know Stalin's son, and he refuses. Refuses to make a trade to save his own son's life. And then after Stalin turns down the trade, Yakov is shot and killed. So, you know, uh, I don't think much of this guy. Don't think much of this guy. But I'm not the only one with opinions on Stalin. Uh, let's check out what some other people think. Let's check out what the idiots of the internet think about Stalin. Idiots of the internet. Looking through the comments under a YouTube video titled Biography, a Joseph Stalin Red Terror Documentary, posted by user History of Wars, you quickly see that a lot of people, especially people who seem to be Russians, uh, admire Stalin for how he modernized the Soviet Union. And they also seem to believe that all the negative stuff written about him is just Western anti-Soviet propaganda. No, it's not. It is true. It is not just Western historical revisionism. Thank God for nonpartisan historians. The longer I do this podcast, the more I value historians. Man, the keepers of the flame of truth, sources you can find uh, when you wade past propaganda bullshit artists, you know, find out what really happened. You know, if, if only more history was written by, by those people and not by regime puppets or sensationalists with clear axes to grind. Well, under the seemingly well-produced documentary, which does seem very truthful, user Alex Berger posts, Stalin was our father, our savior. He led us to victory. He liberated Europe. He made CCCP, Soviet Union, into a superpower. Okay, what's crazy is that technically Stalin did liberate Europe. Uh, without him, the Allies in all likelihood could not have defeated Hitler, but he didn't do it for liberation reasons. He did it to save himself. And to save the nation he'd built in his image, he did it for ego, not for love of country, not for love of his countrymen. Uh, and he did lead Russia into becoming a superpower, but only through casually sacrificing millions of his own people's lives, innocent people's lives, labeled his own soldiers cowards, you know, sent military families to gulags. How far is it okay to take the concept of the ends justify the means? You know, when does it stop being okay? If they always do, then I guess maybe Stalin was good for Russia, maybe. But how can you honestly think this monster who put anyone who opposed him to death or into exile a savior? You're either misinformed, brainwashed, or you are an idiot. Uh, another user takes Alex Berger's questionable praise into pure idiocy. Uh, say, user Robin posts, I don't care if he killed 25 million people. I'm loyal to Stalin. <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, I, I, you know, I'd like to always write off comments like this as just people trolling. But I don't think that's accurate. I really don't. I think some people somehow truly don't care that you know somebody like Stalin killed millions. And I'm guessing in, in part because those deaths have just become an emotionless number to them. Right? You just hear a number. Uh, 20 million people you know, a long time ago. 25 million people a long time ago. 60 million people. Whatever. But imagine if you had to witness all those deaths firsthand. What if you watched those people die? What if you watched millions of families mourn those deaths? What if you saw families torn apart and murdered, all the tears and the wailing and grief, you know, and all of that committed because of paranoia and evil ambition? W would you still just, you know, be a big fan? You know, w would you still be loyal? Would you still not care? Uh, if so, you're just as horrible as he was. You're just a fucking sociopath. Uh, so many comments along this theme. Some user with a name uh, written in Russian, so I can't read it, posts, 
the fake history is over. Uh, archives have been recently looked in Russia, and it is concluded Stalin was a great leader. All the myth about millions killed by Stalin is no longer in use. Stalin was greatest leader ever in history. Stalin received USSR in poor conditions, but left country with best economy, social benefits, and science in the world. What? If that, if that really is true, we need to stop trusting anything printed in English. You know, just accept that the world is flat. Uh, drop out of whatever school you're attending. J- just give up. Just give up believing anything anyone else tells you. You know, historians disagree on a lot of things. Stalin being a bad overall dude, not one of them. No actual credible historian thinks that Stalin was the greatest leader in the fucking history of ever. Right? There, there's a lot of documentation regarding his atrocities. Like, a lot. Uh, and he didn't create the best economy. He created a system of terror where people lived in fear and poverty. Uh, according to a recent Forbes article, Russia currently still has a lower overall quality of life than China does. When you factor in the average citizen's purchasing power index, healthcare index, poverty price to income ratio, uh, average uh, traffic commute time, pollution levels, other factors, what's the point of being a superpower if the life of your average citizen is just wretched? And then idiot Frankie Hunter posts something that actually scares me. Uh, he posts another Stalin video called A Portrait of Stalin's Secret Police. What I don't like in the majority of the comments is the one-sidedness. The people who are living in the West only read and heard bad things about socialism in the Soviet Union. But if you know Russia and follow the Russian comments, they are 80 to 90% in favor of Stalin. And I would rather believe people who lived under Stalin and their children and and grandchildren than the Western quote-unquote historians. No, Frankie Hunter, you dumb shit. Wrong. Why would you believe – People who grew up under a known propaganda regime, you know, who grew up under the influence of massive year after year continual propaganda over outside historians. Never do that. This is why you should never just listen uh, to only your nation's news, including this goes for Americans. When journalists are talking about, you know, your nation, they might, you know, I don't know, be a little bit biased. Get a variety of perspectives. Listen to your own nation's news, but then also listen to like the news of a couple other foreign nations. Find some perspective. Get some variety. You know, and all perspectives concerning Stalin, even from Russian historians, are that he was a fucking monster. It's not like Russian historians are like, no, he was great. He was the best man ever. No, he's he's horrible. You know, a fair amount of people consider him to be a bigger monster than Hitler even was because he created more overall death and terror than Nazis did. Now, I'm not one of those people. Uh, I think he only was able to do that because his reign was longer. I think had Hitler been given another decade or so, uh, he would have made even Stalin uh, look not so bad in comparison. However, unlike uh, Hitler, a lot of Russians still think, yeah, Stalin was a great leader. You know, most modern Germans seem to unanimously despise Hitler. Why? Why do one nation's youth hate their former dictator while another nation's youth seem to revere their dictator or former dictator? Well, according to the thoughts of uh, one Russian historian I found, because Stalin won. This is an interesting thought I wanted to share. Uh, Stalin won his war. He won World War II, and because he was a winner, his crimes get washed away. Uh, he was he, be, he becomes viewed as necessary for Russia to become a superpower. You know, they needed a strong leader, and he just did what he did. You know, they did what had to be done, and and everything else is just lies and half truths spread by those who opposed him. Lies spread by the people he defeated. How sick is that? To the victor go the spoils, and their crimes are forgotten and forgiven. But that is how history works, right? Right, an American of uh, European descent. You know, they're going to have a little different take on General Custer's historical value than a Sioux Nation American Indian. I'm guessing. Uh, a white American, maybe going to feel a little bit differently about the legacy of Thomas Jefferson than an African-American. You know, it's interesting how we view our founders and military leaders, is it not? 
Well, uh, while you can make a case for a lot of historical figures uh, committing bad deeds that can somewhat kind of be chalked up to them being products of their time, you know, uh, you know, Stalin does not get that pass. He, he was not a good dude by any standard, including the standard of a 20th century Bolshevik uh, revolutionary. You know, his peers <laughs> did not consider him to be a good dude. He was a tyrant. Uh, he did accomplish a lot for Russia, but only through committing an unbelievable level of atrocity. And hopefully someday there will be less idiots of the Internet who praise him. Idiots of the Internet. Internet. Stalin's legacy really does make me think about other historical figures, man. How much good does it take to balance out such egregious sins? You know, does turning Russia into an industrial power justify the death of 20 plus million Russians? You know, or some figures up to 60 million. What if had Stalin not modernized Russia, backwards Russia would still have been eventually sacked by the Nazis and the Nazis would have won and butchered, you know, hundreds of millions in, their, in, the, in the wake of World War II. You know, what if they still ruled the world today? Does doing what he did to militarize, industrialize Russia, which did lead to his ability to keep Hitler from sacking Moscow and possibly win the war, you know, it does, did give allies the time and opportunity to invade Berlin. Does that justify his crimes? I don't think so. I don't think so because it's not like he did what he did to stop Hitler. His motive was never altruistic, never remotely selfless. Uh, he did what he did because he wanted to just continue to lead, you know, the most powerful nation, one of the most powerful nations in the world a at any cost. His actions were all about his desire for power, his unquenchable thirst for control. His ruthless ambition happened to lead to some good outcomes. Uh, he was a piece of shit whose own evil deeds did, you know, kind of put him in, in a place where he was able to cancel out another evil dictator's horrible agenda, but that doesn't make him a good dude in any way, I don't think. To me, Stalin is no better than some gangbanger who happens to shoot another gangbanger and some drug deal gone bad before that gangbanger accidentally shoots an innocent child. You know, gangbanger number one did technically save a kid's life in that situation, but he's also uh, sure as shit not a hero. So to me, that's Stalin. That's the gist. Now, let's take one more look back at the Russia, uh, Russia's Man of Steel with some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, by 1927, 10 years after the Bolshevik Revolution and three years after, the, after Revolution leader Lenin's death, Stalin consolidated his stranglehold on the Soviet Union and turned a backwoods farming nation where nine out of ten Russians lived in rural farming villages into an industrial superpower able to help defeat Hitler in World War II. Number two, under Stalin's reign, over six million citizens of the Soviet Union were deliberately killed by Stalin's regime, either executed outright or dying from anything but natural causes in gulags. Over 20 million deaths are attributed to having been the direct consequence of Stalin's actions, such as enforcing collectivized farming. Number three, Stalin had a 13-year-old Siberian lover who he got pregnant twice. Gross. Number four, if Leon Trotsky would have succeeded Lenin instead of Stalin, many, many less Russians would have died as Trotsky was far less bloodthirsty. However, Trotsky did want to make the uh, world one big communist state. So maybe Stalin saved America in a weird way from becoming a communist nation. Eh, so I guess maybe thank Stalin for that. Uh, number five, new info. Uh, let's look at a few Stalin quotes that reveal further insight in his, into uh, his deplorable character. Uh, here's the first one. A single death is a tragedy. A million deaths is a statistic. Okay. Ideas are far more powerful than guns. We don't let our people have guns. Why should we let them have ideas? That's terrifying. And uh, the final one, death is the solution to all problems. No man, no problem. Wow. That last quote is so exactly what I think sometimes. Son of a bitch. Turns out I got a little Stalin in me. 
Ah, I do in moments of frustration think, no, man, no problem. Dead. Maybe in light of hearing this, uh, you know, come from Stalin, uh, that's not the best way for me to think. Oh, and his mustache supposedly influenced the mustaches of uh, Hitler, Saddam Hussein, and other dictators. Yeah, he had a, he had a fashionable stash. Seriously, got to have, gotta have a strong stash game, I guess, to rule with an iron fist. Time suck. Top five takeaways. So that's it. Stalin has been sucked. And now time for a few more announcements before uh, this week's Time Sucker updates. Uh, Houston and Dallas. Again, as I said last week, added to the tour. I'll be at the Secret Group Theater in Houston Friday, April 13th. Uh, I'll be at the Texas Theater in Dallas Saturday, April 14th. One show only in each of those places. Uh, more dates at the freshly built uh, DanCummins.tv. Yeah, thanks to Josh Krell for getting that going, getting it up. Uh, fuck you to Warner Brothers Records uh, for making it such a pain in the ass to redesign my own goddamn website. Uh, again, Check out Patreon, become a space lizard, ensure the survival of time suck. Let this experiment and curiosity continue to grow. I can't do it without you. And enjoy that new album on Pandora. And then enjoy the new album from the fucking space lizards. Right? You're gonna get maybe I'm the problem on Pandora, and then in a few weeks you're gonna get feel the heat uh, when you become a space lizard. Uh, link in the episode description for both signing up on Patreon and the uh, Pandora uh, album access. Thanks to Sydney Shives, Harmony Velikamp, Jesse Dobner, uh, the entire Time Suck team. Thanks for all the reviews. Spreading the suck. Right around 2,500 reviews on iTunes right now. So That helps so much. It helps me get other uh, helps me get on other notable podcasts as a guest uh, so I can reach more future time suckers, get more space lizards. Uh, big thanks to my little sister, Donna, Donna Hale, for helping so, so much with the Stalin research. She is a fantastic teacher and a fantastic Russian researcher. Uh, and thanks to all of you who recommended Stalin for today's suck. Morgan Miller, Luke Perard, Crystal Laundry, uh, Seth Quell, Dylan Newton, anyone else I forgot. Next bonus episode drops this Friday, January 26th, and the topic is going to be a surprise. What's that about? Huh? Well, you already know if you follow the show on Instagram at Time Suck Podcast. So follow and find out. And now for some Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Okay, so I teased big back and forth with Super Sucker Jessica Dowd last week, and that's what today's Time Suck Updates is going to be about. Just uh, this exchange, uh, Jessica and I have been going back and forth in a very fun, respectful, and enlightening way, i got to say, over the nature of Freemasons' fraternal organization and the, uh, you know, the nature of organizations to be able to choose their members based on something like gender in general. Basically, Jessica did not care for my endorsement initially of Freemasons continuing to be a boys' club. Because it's not like dudes – it's just dudes playing poker, drinking old fashions, or sneaking away from their families. You know, it's, it's guys who are networking. They're sharing career opportunities, and historically, they've had a lot of prominent members, such as many presidents, who can really help your career. Now, now I know that's not currently the case, but it could be again. We don't know what powerful people are mingling as, as Masons right now. And since men have you know, historically had more career opportunities than women, does supporting this organization kind of support sexism in a way? It's a fair question to ask. And if you're a and if you're a Freemason time sucker, don't freak out. Uh, please listen to this whole back and forth. Uh, here are a few excerpts from Jessica's initial email. She says, "I know there was a lot of good stuff in the Freemas Freemason, excuse me, episode this week, but I couldn't hear any of it after your arguments for it being an all male institution. It really upset me that you don't see why that might be harmful for women. In your example, you made a comparison between the Mocha Moms and the Freemasons. There really is no comparison." 
If the mocha moms were to expand to allow white males like you, you might gain a new, uh, few new friends. You might hear some gossip and get some advice on problems that women of color face. Pretty much nothing, uh, you know, I'm guessing you are super interested in. If the Freemasons were to expand to allow females like me, I would be able to gain an instant nationwide network that would help me get jobs, connect with important people in my field, chemical engineering, by the way, about 90% male, and learn from the collective wisdom of powerful people from the last several centuries. Pretty much all I want from life. Well, Jessica, I can't argue with that. Unfortunately, I also can't change history. And this is kind of some of what I, you know, sent back to Jessica. You know, I can't go back and create a female equivalent to the Freemasons. It is unfair to women, you know, that historical uh, divide. It is. But, but, if we, but if we force fraternal organizations to open their doors to women, then we have to force women to open their group's doors to men. You know, my wife attends a few meetings for women, uh, some political, some relating to her job as a real estate agent. Uh, she values being able to share her thoughts in a women's only environment. She feels comfortable saying things there that she wouldn't say uh, necessarily if men were present. And, and I wouldn't want to take that away from her. Uh, here's another example. A comedian, Eliza Schlesinger, she's being sued right now for turning away two men who wanted to attend a girls' night out – or excuse me, girls' night in show November 13th at the Largo at the Coronet Theater in Los Angeles. The show was advertised as a hybrid stand-up show, an interactive discussion between Eliza and the women in the audience aimed at giving women a place to vent in a supportive, fun, and inclusive environment. She invited all you know women of all walks of life to come laugh with her and you know be ready to share and feel safe for an awesome night of comedy and love. And two dudes are suing because they weren't allowed to attend. And I want to punch both of them in their fucking whiny faces. You know why can't there be a women's only night? Because it violates California state discrimination laws. Now laws that were passed for a good reason. I don't think this is a good example of those uh, uh, you know good reasons. Now imagine if that show was men's only. Uh, you know what if what if it was uh, go back to the Mocha Mom example? What if it was white men only? There would be more than a lawsuit. There would be a national discussion. There would be protests and fucking outrage. Um, and, you know, whoever put on that show would be a white supremacist. And, again, I am a guy who has no interest in ever creating a dude-only show, starting a dude-only group, let alone a white dude-only group. But freedom can't apply to only one certain gender, only one certain race. It doesn't make sense to me to combat racism and sexism by being racist and sexist. So what do we do? You know, do all groups have to let anyone and everyone join? Or as long as a group doesn't involve hiring employees or letting someone into a school or business or, uh, you know, can groups discriminate? Who gets to discriminate? Anyone? No one? You know, businesses can't do it. Is Eliza a business? Should social clubs be allowed to do it? Or is it time to end it for everyone? No Freemason, fraternal order, no mocha moms, no other group of any type. Okay, so I kind of went back with that, and then Jessica came back with another email. She said, uh, and again, just some excerpts, maybe the answer is not to sort people by categories. Instead of using white, black, male, female, a shorthand, uh, we could define the Freemasons as a group for ambitious professionals in search of intellectual growth and the all-female showing of Wonder Women for people who have felt oppressed in a patriarchal society. Especially in the modern society where gender is becoming more fluid, it might help more people to fit in, even if it is a lot harder to name a club or an event. Even the Boy Scouts are now allowing girls in if they want to learn the same things that Boy Scouts learn. I have been a part of a few women's groups myself, and I am always pleased when men come to take interest in the kinds of things we talk about in an effort to understand. And then Jessica added later in the email, at the same time, I do see your point about allowing private institutions people to exclude people from groups. I just feel like there should be a reason behind it. As long as a man is not disruptive of the purpose of a women's group, I would have no problem with him being there. Stay-at-home dads are included in mothering groups. Gay men are included into groups to gossip about men. And female video gamers are allowed into the gamer chat rooms. I, I would just like to the same courtesy extended to me where I am not excluded just because of a chromosome. Uh, if there were religious beliefs behind the male Freemasons or any visible reason beyond the fact that they wrote no women down on a piece of paper uh, that also included defining the proper color, race, and religion, I could respect that. 
And later she signed off with, I really appreciate the ability to think this through further, even if probably is just getting both of us entrenched in our own opinions. Future space lizard, Jessica. Well, thank you, Jessica. And we, and we did share a lot of other nice things too. That's what I love about this kind of back and forth, man. It can be very respectful. And, 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 and you know, a little bit of my response uh, at the end last night is just maybe you're right. I said to Jessica, maybe the Freemasons just are not the right group to be all male. Uh, I do still believe in men's groups, women groups, etc. cetera, uh, when it is not some type of support group or when it is some type, excuse me, of support group setting. But when it comes to transferring ancient knowledge and bettering one's life, maybe division by sex really just is sexist in an outdated way of thinking. Who knows? Maybe I'm really tired after a long day or maybe you're changing and evolving my mind. And, you know, and I realized talking to Jessica, you know, I, I, I just – I found myself defending Freemasons' right to be fraternal based on libertarian ideals, that I think people should be able to form whatever group they want. But I also realized on a personal level that if I were a Freemason, I don't think I'd give a shit if women were allowed in. So what do you think? You know, this is, this is an interesting just discussion. Would it be a big deal to make Freemasons co-ed? Do men really need to have this particular group themselves? Uh, and, and if they do or if they don't, you know, uh, what groups are okay to divide by sex? You know, and again, uh, reminder, space lizards take everybody. I don't care if you have two dicks and four vaginas. I don't care if you're half black, half white, and somehow also half Asian. I don't care if you're a right-wing Christian fundamentalist during the week and then an atheist Hollywood elite liberal on the weekend. If you're curious, you're fucking in. So that's where I stand in all of that. But I do want to hear from you uh, about the Freemasons and more updates next week. Thank you, Jessica, future space lizard, and thanks to all of you. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. So that is it for today, time suckers. You know, so uh, so don't kill millions of people this week. Uh, don't have a 13-year-old girlfriend unless you're also around the age of 13. Listen to my new stand-up album, Maybe I'm the Problem, for free on Pandora. Do it. And even more important, sign up to become a space lizard now and keep on sucking. <laughs> Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.